opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to day two of Sagebrush uh, for RSVA. We welcome you. Uh, we have a great lineup for today. And uh, uh, please stick around after our convention. We've got an uh, RSVA auction tonight. Those, those, uh, uh, those are always fun. I'm trying to get more words out of my mouth than I have room for this morning. So I apologize. Welcome. Uh, your moderator for this morning is uh, Artis Bazin, and uh, virtually, I'm sure all of you know Artis, and she's going to do a great job keeping the train rolling this morning. So, Artis, go to it. Okay. Well, I bet you everyone would love to have door prizes. So, we're going to start off with three door prizes, and the door prizes will get a um, a gift certificate in email and uh, um, t-shirts will go out to some too okay benjamin plots from michigan philip hubble from florida and john r herndon from tennessee oh fabulous all right well congratulations everyone Okay, <clears throat> well, we're going to start off wanting asking for participation. So, um, before I give the title of the discussion, um, Sheila, would you like to give people directions on how they can um, get involved in the discussion? Yes, ma'am, I'd be happy to. If you are on a PC, this is a webinar. So, if you're on a PC, to raise your hand is Alt Y. No one will be able to unmute unless I give you the command that you may unmute. So when you do that, when I when I give you, allow you to talk, then you can do Alt-A to mute and unmute on a PC. On a Mac, it's option Y to raise your hand. And then when you get the, you are allowed to unmute, command Shift-A. If you're on a smart device, raise hand should be in the center of your screen. And then mute is in the bottom left. And on a standard keypad, it is star nine to raise your hand for the letter Y and star six to mute for the letter M to mute and unmute. So there you go, artist. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Our first item on the agenda this morning is just a roundtable discussion. We'd like to hear how everyone is handling the product shortages and the delivery issues that have been happening and how do you deal with them and compensate, et cetera. So who would like to speak up first? Yeah, please give us some advice because uh, this has been a challenge for me and my business as well as all of you. So we're, we're looking for ideas to share. And I know it's been tough. I know it's been really tough. And uh, I've had to try some 
some different products. I, I guess I'm uh, for myself. I'm down to what can I get? <laughs> okay, and, you do have a hand raised, Roger. You may unmute. <laughs> yes, this is Roger from Tennessee. Uh, I have a, a jail, a commissary, and basically all we've done with it is um, um, we sent out a, a broadcast to the inmates just to let them know that um, what is going on and that um, we may not have all the products every week, um, but we will always try to keep most of their things on hand as we can get it. And the other thing that we've tried to do is just stock up on stuff, long dated stuff. So we know that we have it um, for the upcoming weeks. So that's what we have done. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I know, I know in my business, uh, I'll tend to, um, if there's a product that I know is going to go well, and even if the date is slightly shortened, I'm going to get a little more than I usually do just because I don't know in three weeks and six weeks what that market may look like. So I'll stock up a little heavier on items. I know I can get if I've had uh, outages on it before. So that's one of my strategies. Okay. 865 area code ending in 477. You may unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. It was talking over, so I couldn't tell if it actually took the, um, the mute off. This is Linda Allison. And, uh, on the, the, the stuff like I'm um, like Scott and Roger, as far as I, I call it hoarding, um, it, laughingly, but I mean, I, I hoard everything I can get that's long dated, but, um, I keep a supply of, um, like 16.9 ounce drinks, um, because they are fairly readily available. And I, I, while they don't necessarily work in the stack machines, I've got, uh, enough Bev Maxes and, uh, I've had multiple times where Coke just decided I didn't need any Coke or Diet Coke or Coke Zero or uh, Dr. Pepper or Diet Dr. Pepper, and sometimes all in one load. Um, so I end up with a bunch of, we'll just say, disgruntled humans. And, uh, you know, it's nice that the 16.9s are readily available at Sam's and Walmart and um, all of those places. So I just, I just have my little, little stash so that, uh, when the, uh, like sure Dr. Pepper didn't even bother to deliver this week. So, um, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. So, um, hoarding, uh, the, and I'm sorry, hoard, I know that's a terrible term. Um, stockpiling is, uh, is definitely to your advantage when you can find things with the longer dates. But you got to watch because Coke, you know, regular Coke, not not diet. Um, when they delivered here uh, back in December, they brought me a load. I mean, a big load. I ordered 24 cases because they actually had it. And uh, they were all marked February. Um, I got short dated by Coca-Cola. So um, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge. All right, thank you, Linda. You're welcome. Any other hands, Sheila? No, ma'am. Oh, yes. Uh, 718 765. You may unmute. 
Hi, this is Kyle Tyson from New York. Hey, Kyle. Good morning. Hey, Scott. Yeah, uh, I kind of do what the guy from Tennessee does. Uh, for the main, for the most part, I just inform my customers, uh, you know, that I can't get everything um, that I want and that I ask for. And for the most part, they're pretty understanding. You know, they they know the deal with the pandemic and how hard it is to get things. So for the most part, they are pretty understanding. I do have multiple purveyors. Like sometimes I order from Coke or Pepsi and they do leave out a lot of stuff. So I do have third party um, beverage and snack purveyors. So sometimes they fill in the gaps. Perfect. Thank you, Kyle. That was awesome. Roger, you may unmute. Yeah, one other thing that I, I would suggest too, I know that, that we do is, um, you know, we're, we're on the phone weekly um, to our um, uh, vendors that we use and because they know ahead of time, most of the time, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to get this, or we're not getting this. And, you know, then I will alternate other things in its place if we know that's going to happen so just staying in touch with the vendor is a very important thing and they can keep they can actually give you more insight than anything of what's coming yeah that that's a that's a great suggestion roger i'm thinking about here in minnesota i i have a close tie to our our vistar rep and if there's something i can't get i'll i could call him and say what other options do I have? Um, yeah. Sometimes I know the options and sometimes I don't, but it's just good to keep in t contact with those folks. They can kind of fill in those blanks where you're starting to struggle getting product. They may say, well, you know, I know this isn't perfect, but maybe try this. And to me, a winning strategy here is to say, okay, so I know product A is not available. This is a great opportunity. You might learn something. You might try a different product. And you might find huh, success with something that you never would have anticipated before. So always look at it as an opportunity to do something new and different and possibly find a bigger profit margin than what you have been doing. That would be one of my recommendations. Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. Kevin, you may unmute. Kevin, you may unmute. All right, I'll try one more time. Kevin, you may unmute. Hello. Hey, Kevin, you're on. This is one of the uh, the ideals that uh, some of the managers in West Tennessee has done. If one manager may have more than uh, products that they need, they will sell some of the products to the other managers so that they can have items that they can use to uh, put in their vending machines. So that's one of the things that we do um, in West Tennessee over here. That's a great idea. Yes, definitely. Thanks for sharing that, Kevin. That was good. <clears throat> They currently don't have any other hands raised. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to go through my mind and, and think of some options I could put out there for folks. But um, 
certainly I know in my case, I would use, I use Vistar for most items, but you know, there's, I, I have two options here in the Twin Cities. Certainly I, I'm never a huge fan of Sam's Club just because their dates tend to be shorter. Uh, they're getting second and third product from the supplier. Um, so I'm, I'm never a huge fan of it. I know some of you use them and that's fine. If it works for you, great. But Sam's Club and Costco, whole, or Costco Business may be an option as well to, to work those uh, supply chains a little bit. I, I know uh, Costco Business, I've been having issues getting Mountain Dew and Diet Mountain Dew in 20 ounce, which I it blows my mind that they told me they're going to quit selling that. But um, there's some reasons and I get it, but uh, I, I just can't imagine being in the Midwest and not selling Mountain Dew. That just seems like such a strange option to me. But, but yeah, this is a real problem. Well, one of the things I, I know when I was a vendor, I used um, Sam's Club and other big box stores on occasion because I couldn't always I couldn't always order the large orders that Vistar required. So I ended up doing it even though and there wasn't uh, a lot of shortages at the time. It's good for smaller operators to do that fill-in in between those big orders. Right. No, I get it. I do get it. Yeah. Uh, 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 Scott, or Artis, yeah. uh, uh, Dan Sipple here. Um, just one uh, quick note. You know, um, Costco and Sam's are ideal um, reserve sources, but be very careful. Um, some of the stuff that they offer uh, is not for individual resale. It's only to be sold in the package it comes in. And by federal law, the, if, it's, if it's marked not for individual sale, means it doesn't have the, uh, the proper labeling as far as ingredient statements or net weight. That, uh, and uh, it requires which is required on all products that are, that are sold for individual consumption. And uh, sometimes, you know, and I found that with, um, particularly with the ice cream products, uh, uh, novelty items, uh, ice cream sandwiches, and ice cream bars, is that uh, they were intended to be sold in a six pack box. Well, we don't vent six packs of uh, ice cream bars in our vending machine. So we, you know, we had to resort and not not purchase those from Sam. We had to get those directly through uh, Blue Bunny and stuff. So just always be very aware of um, the packaging and the proper it has proper labeling when you buy from the big box stores. That is that is a great reminder, and uh, you do have to be careful of that. I'm I'm always mindful of that when I shop those stores that. Uh, you do have to look at the product, and I, I am guilty of once in a while opening a box to actually see if things are individually marked because sometimes it's not super clear on the box. So I hate doing it because um, I hate ruining product, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I just don't see that I have a choice. If I need to know, I need to know. So, yeah. And uh, just one other comment, too, I'd like to offer. Um, and, um, you know, the, there's an expiration date. It's known as an expiration date on most all products nowadays. Um, in the past, a lot of, particularly the candy bar manufacturers, used a Julian date, but most of them have converted to the, uh, um, the traditional dating system and they've gotten away from the Julian dating system. But um, th that is a recommended freshness date. There's only one product in the United States that is required 
to have an expiration date, and that is smoked fish. Everything else is the recommended freshness date that the manufacturer chooses and has tested. So you can sell, you know, comfortably and safely sell that product up until that date, beyond that date. It's probably not good customer relations to keep it in there once that date, because most of society understands or believes that that's the product is stale once it hits that date. That is not at all true. The only thing that is unsafe to eat is smoked fish. Once it hits that date, you cannot eat it. You should not eat it, I should say. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Dan, because those expiration codes are uh, for the maximum freshness and taste that those manufacturers are looking for. And any days beyond that, they can't guarantee that it'll be the same. It, it, it more than likely will, but they can't guarantee it. Yeah, it, it'll, be, uh, it'll be safe, uh, but you can't um, guarantee the the freshness quality beyond that, but it's, it's safe to eat. Uh, it uh, won't be unhealthy with the exception of, you know, smoked fish. That's why that's the only product in the United States that uh, is required to have the expiration date. Yep. I'm, I'm trying not to deviate too far away from our subject here, but yes, that is very true. <laughs> so, yeah. This is a whole road I could go down for quite a while, but I, I won't. <laughs> no, I think that's just something that when you, when you um, like Linda says, when you hoard uh, products or something or a stockpile, you know, that adds to our supply chain problem. Uh, and it's not a solution. It's our personal solution, but it, it compounds uh, um, the supply chain problem. Because many manufacturers have, uh, you know, because of packaging, accessibility, and whatever else, they've um, cut back on production of certain items and a lot of, as we had on our um, check-in calls on Tuesday nights, Scott, you know, we've had several manufacturers come up and say, well, there's, they're reducing their um, production to core items only. They're eliminating the second, and there's at least a third uh, down third the two categories, and sometimes the second categories. They're only going to uh, produce first-line categories. Uh, so that's something you'd be aware of too. That you, it, and that's temporary. You know that'll that'll go away once the supply chain uh, is uh, resolved. Um, so it's just it's a matter of patience, I guess, and uh, waiting through the process and not adding to the problem. Yeah. By hoarding. Well, no, you're 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 right, Dan, and that's 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 a, always a tough call. I know in in my case, I order a little more. You know, I don't like blast in another 50 cases of something, but I'll order a little heavier in that item if I know I can get it. And I, I don't think yeah. that's totally disrupting the chain, but um, yeah, it no, is something no. to think about for sure. Yeah, there's something you so, want to keep in mind is that, you know, we don't want another toilet paper issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> well, and that's what's, that's what's nice about having other operators that are nearby if you can, you know, share products back and forth, and that keeps that um, hoarding for an individual down to right. That really, yeah. uh, that's an excellent. Right. Here it's been the paper cups for your coffee machines. They've been in short supply, and uh, I've got some extra. Which, if any other Twin Cities vendor would need some, I'm certainly willing to share. And that, if that helps them get through and helps me get through, that's that's perfect. You know. Um, it's just it's so interesting how it's just reached all sectors. Um, even thinking about Frito-Lay products, when 
there's a couple weeks you're not getting Cheetos. Cheetos, the core yeah. state of Frito Lay. Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of scary. It really is. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> right. Yeah, same here. Yeah. <laughs> Flaming hot. As as my wife calls it, cheesy crack. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else have any comments or thoughts on how to how to navigate through our shortages here? Any more hands, Sheila? No, ma'am. Not or yet. Okay. That, that is doing better than you anticipated is always a good thing so, to hear about. Uh, just one okay, more you do have one now. Oh, I'm oh. sorry, Dan. Go ahead. Uh, one, one more comment. Um, the the paper cup shortage for coffee cups has really been an issue for just about everybody in the last uh, six months to a year. Um, and one thing, some just as a quick reminder, if you have the traditional coffee machine, um, you are not limited to an eight ounce cup or 12 ounce cup or 16 ounce cup or 20 ounce cup. You can adjust, most of them, you can adjust the cup or, or a different brand of cup. It, it takes a little time to re, reconfigure your machine to handle a different brand of cup depending on the rim side and stuff, but you don't really need to stick with the uh, brand you've always been using. It's nice if you can, because then you don't have to make any adjustments to the machine, but uh, machines well, are adjustable to handle different brands of cups. You you are right, Dan. Um, there is a caveat with that. Some brands tend to work a little bit better because of how their uh, lip on the cup is shaped opposed to other brands. But you are right. right. You know, you may have to put up with that bit of hassle with those cups snagging up once in a while. I mean, it, it, that's just the way it is. But that is an option. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. So, Kathy, Kathy's got Kathy. Hi. Go ahead. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just I'm I'm not a vendor. I'm an administrator. But I've been listening to the vendors, and um, I, I didn't hear any of them pipe up. But some of them go together on orders, and that allows them to get a higher minimum. And others are intentionally looking for um, comparable items. So instead of Doritos nachos, they might look for two or three other spicy chips and just have that on their radar so that if they give a call and they try and order something that's not available, then they'll ask for those other two. And apparently by asking the person you're talking to, you can get... Um, a lot they will share information that you just don't get if you just make the order so kind of developing that relationship helps and, and that's probably something you guys already know but i was really proud of the guys for uh sharing like that so that they could afford to um, purchase things no that that's great if that's a system that works for you and you've got uh, folks that are willing to share and work together that's perfect if anybody has tips on how to do that successfully um, with people you don't know as well, that would be interesting. Right. Well, I'd be curious if anybody out in our audience is doing that. That would be that'd be a great thing to hear. Um, just a, another quick thought on that. Thank you, Kathy. I think that you know that um, a number of vendors across the country have been using this that uh, system for uh, quite some time for years. And uh, another thought would be like in some of your larger metropolitan, and primarily it works better in your capital cities of each state because that's where the crux of our business is and the government buildings. 
is that uh, if they if they uh, don't have their own personal warehouse, they will get together three, you know, two, three, four, five um, vendors in that particular metropolitan area. Will rent a commercial warehouse space in the same facility, and then they can go to their supplier and say, "Okay, you, you know." Then uh, the supplier will generally give them a better price because they can uh, facilitate dropping off two, three, four, or five pallets in one stop rather than having their truck uh, go 15, 20 miles in between stops. It logistically it, it helps out the supplier. Uh, the distributor, and so they'll uh, usually offer a discount on, and so those people that can get together and have their shipment dropped off all at the same facility saves them substantial money over the, the month's time or particularly over a year's time. Okay, any more hands? No, ma'am, not right now. Okay, well, <clears throat> I think we'll go ahead and move on then. Uh, thank you all for participating in the discussion. We really appreciate it when uh, people bring forward ideas to everyone to share. I'm going to, now I'm going to read the um, CE code for those who are doing the CEU credit program. And the CE code for this next session is 2ACD32. Again, that's number 2ACD32. <clears throat> and we'll go into our next topic. And the topic is how recent changes have affected cashless and telemetry. And we have two speakers for this panel. We have Bunny Proof from Cantaloupe, and we have Francis Skyvara from Par Level. So I'll let them choose to decide who wants to go first. Good morning, everyone. This is Good Bunny. Morning. Good morning. Um, I'm sure I've worked. Uh, my name is Bunny Proof. I'm the VP of Inside Sales at um, Cantaloupe, which is also um, a merger of USA Tech and Cantaloupe. So we're all one big happy company now. Um, Francis, um, would you like to begin or would you like me to jump in? I believe I see Francis and the attendee. Would you like her promoted to... The panelist side? Yes, please. I'll, so we don't waste time. I'll go ahead and start the discussion. Um, I wanted to just give you a quick overview about what... Uh, oh, sorry, my dog is barking. Uh, what I've had DMV, that really too. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of one of the downsides of hearing voices. <laughs> he hears a lot of voices. <laughs> Gotta love pugs, man. Um, so EMV stands for EuroPay MasterCard Visa. Um, that standard started initiating around 2015 in Europe. And it was a, a means of um, basically ascertaining that the card holder has a legitimate card. Um, and it is that little chip 
that um, that you've started seeing come out with your cards, uh, your bank debit and credit cards um, in the last few years. Now, um, Europe started with that standard and started requiring it much earlier here than in the U.S. Um, as many of you know, USA Tech slash Cantaloupe has been in business for 30 years now. Um, so we're right on the cutting edge of um, what's being accepted, what's being not. But we also have an incredible amount of buying power um, in this market. So up until recently, we were able to continue to um, accept card transactions, whether they were chip enabled or not. And kind of we were able to maintain that sort of agnostic acceptance. But now the card processors have kind of put drawn a line in the sand and said, hey, as of this date and this time, we're going to start charging the merchants of record um, a fee if somebody is not using an EMV certified transaction um, or POS terminal. That being said, um, since USAT slash Cantaloupe is the merchant of record for any of our hardware, um, that is, a, those are fees that we are going to absorb for the next six months. Um, the timeline we were given by the card processors was um, they're starting to charge fees for us right now. Those fees will double. We recognize that it's a painful transition for some of our operators who have equipment that was manufactured prior to 2017, because most equipment, actually all equipment prior to 2017 um, is not EMV. So what um, this will affect anybody with anything that's a G9, a GA, an edge unit, um, but we can, um, as a team, there are 12 sales team members here in the office along with me who can um, help you assess any EMV liability you may have. What will happen at that point, um, come August 1st, is we're going to stop taking um, the contactless transactions if the POS terminal is not EMV. Um, but most of those out there that were purchased in the last five years are. So that's discussion around EMV. There's also, at the same time, thank you to Verizon and AT&T for this, they're shutting down their 3G networks. We've been talking about this for quite a while. Um, there's not much, um, we as companies, and I'm sure Francis would agree with this on, uh, agree with me on this. There's not a lot we could do with cellular companies, but to contract with them as long as we can. Um, the 3G networks, um, AT&T and T-Mobile are going to start um, degrading now as our Verizon 3G devices. Um, those networks will, um, the Verizon network would definitely be ending by the end of December. That doesn't mean that some of these still won't work because Verizon has to upgrade all of their towers in order for this to happen. But you'll see a slow degradation of signal and maybe you'll see fewer card transactions and along those lines. So if you need some assessment from your salesperson on what needs to be upgraded and what doesn't, um, feel free to contact us. That communication is, as you know, critical for managing your business. 
not only does it allow you to um, allow you to provide cashless transactions or cashless acceptance um, for your customers, but it also allows you data so that you can assess your business needs, figure out what products you've sold and which ones you haven't. And what are best sellers, what are not best sellers, what alerts there are available at the machines. So um, both um, myself and Francis provide um, then management solutions for you um, to enable the information from your vending machine. So it's the DEX information and the MDB information that can be transmitted and provide you vend management information and proactive information so that you can go service your machines properly. Um, we are um, agnostic. Um, Cantaloupe has always been fairly agnostic and we are a partner with Parlevel as well in providing data. Um, so it really is a matter of which vend management system is the right fit for you. Um, I don't want to take up too much time. I want Francis to jump on in, and then I believe we have a Q&A as well. Francis? Hello, everyone. Um, thank you, Bunny, very much for um, kind of going over the EMV as well as the, the network issue that we've been facing, um, simply because at the end of the day, Parlevel is more of a software provider when it comes to the vending space. Um, and we partner with many different people when it comes to receiving data, which is, you know, through um, credit card readers, which, I mean, we have a number of customers that use um, Cantaloupe as their cashless provider. So, um, again, thank you, Bonnie, for that. Um, for anybody who is not familiar with who I, who I am, my name is Frankie. Um, my government name is Francis. However, in the vending space, um, I go by a nickname. Um, I do, I'm also the BEP liaison for the entire um, U.S., so I have done business with a number of different um, states as well as individual operators um, for different things. So um, thank you very much for inviting Parlevel to speak at Sagebrush. We've always enjoyed this conference and chatting with everybody, being a source of knowledge. Um, so but whenever I read the invitation from artists, for me, when it was asking about um, recent changes and, you know, telemetry and cashless due to, I kind of took it as more of like what's been going on with COVID and how the use of hardware and technology has helped operators stay in business, as well as be able to service their accounts and meet the ever-changing needs that, that their locations are requiring when it comes to um, health and safety measures, um, you know, limiting the amount of people that are coming in, that sort of thing. Especially when I saw that Harry and um, Bunny were going to be joining us, I figured they would kind of address the hardware part. Um, so, but for my operators, the one thing that I've heard um, mostly from people is how important it has become to them with being able to monitor their business remotely. Um, and they're using this through a credit card reader because the cashless device is sending data over to my software that we're translating for our operators to be able to read and make decisions. So that is going from if they need to service an account um, rather than going into the location twice the first time to take down what all you need to fill the machine with. And then the second, you know, going back out to your vehicle and then coming back in. Um, and filling the machine out with my system, you're going in one time. So it's limiting how many times you're going into account as well as um, how often 
which locations, particularly ones who have high-risk patients being hospitals, um, nursing homes, that sort of thing, they really appreciate that. The other thing that I've heard quite often is, especially during lockdown in some of these locations that were not allowing people, any outside visitors to come in whatsoever, that they were able to use telemetry to see what the vending machine needs at the account and be able to drop a box off at the location and have somebody on site go in and fill the machine so that way they're still able to service um, the, the individuals that were still coming in and they were being able to support, you know, our frontline workers during that time. So, um, telemetry has really helped in that aspect of being able to still service your account. And then on the sales side of this, I mean, we are very familiar with the chain shortage that was happening. I mean, in some places it still is very much a thing with, um, you know, there being issues with being able to get coins. Um, and in some cases, bills. So providing an, a, a different avenue to pay with the credit card reader, of course, kind of mitigates that issue, um, as well as also um, kind of ties in with this whole idea of making things more contactless. So, um, you know, using your credit card reader as well as an app that most credit card readers have um, through your provider will be able to ask a vending machine to vend product, um, you know, and remove items from, you know, an account that you have set up with them. It's also a way of being able to do loyalty um, and that sort of thing. So I feel like technology really has evolved and much more quickly than because of COVID and kind of the environment that we all have been functioning in in the past two years. So where it's now not just used as a tool to, um, as a means to take payment, but it's also a way to engage your consumers as well as be able to help run your business a little bit more lean and mean um, and taking care of your accounts and any safety concerns that they may have. So I think um, that's kind of it for me, like on my kind of take on the topic matter um, in terms of the devices and issues like that. Like I said, we are a partner with um, anybody in the industry that has credit card readers, um, you know, so we take data from whomever um, I'm here to help. Um, the one thing I do know is that even though they're seeing 3G units in certain areas or sunsetting, I, I don't think the cellular companies even know what's going on. <laughs> at the moment because in certain regions the opposite carrier is sunsetting their devices like it's been a very big scramble so um i totally feel for you guys and what you're going through right now and bunny and i are both are here to make this um as easy and as painless as possible if that's even a thing to do yeah i mean it's um cellular carriers we've been through this once before when the 2g networks were starting to sunset it just so happens that that most of the 3G stuff that we manufactured is um, also non-EMV. So it, 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 you hate to say it's like a perfect storm, it's an ugly perfect storm, but it happens. Um, unfortunately, with cellular communication and technology being what it is, um, it is something we are going to have to address. That being said, we are coming out with a new program uh, that I want everybody to stay tuned to. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with a cellular plan and you use your cell phone and then it's time to get a new one and you just change it in and get it, get something new. Um, we are, we have developed a new program called Cantaloupe One um, and you'll be seeing some really cool information about that in your, your email shortly, um, but it is a, a way of um, protecting you against um, credit card changes, network changes on the hardware side. So stay tuned. Um, it will be a no-cost venture, um, which is beautiful. 
Um, does anybody have any questions? Because I really would like to answer any questions. I know that there's been a lot of misinformation put out there, and I'd like to dispel anything if I could. Yes, you have a hand raised. Brian, you may unmute. Am I live now? Yes. Excellent. Uh, my question is regarding the VMS software. Is there a minimum number of machines required? And what is what would be the monthly cost to do the telemetry to know what's in the machine? Sure. Um, Bunny, do you want to go first or do you want me to? I'll go um, quickly. Um, there is no minimum for Seed Cashless Plus, which has been, by the way, 99.5% vetted by um, blind vendors across the country. Um, and it is an additional $3 per machine per month. It includes the mobile app as well. That's nice. That's excellent. Thank you. Because CPI is uh, less than uh, user-friendly, especially with screen readers. Exactly. Um, Francis, would you like to go ahead and talk about yours? Sure. So um, if you're looking at just doing software only um, with par level, we do, it's not necessarily a minimum, but if you're under um, 15 machines, it's a flat fee a month of $80. And then after that is a per machine per month connection fee of $4 a machine. Thank you. Anthony, you may unmute. I have a question. Have, uh, have you guys uh, given any thought to uh, making uh, making this crypto friendly? And uh, also, uh, have you considered the integration into the metaverse? Excellent question. Um, I'll be happy to um, answer that. If anybody is going to attend NAMA, we will have a demo of our crypto acceptance. Um, we will be accepting crypto in the next couple, uh, couple of months. I'm excited because my husband is a total tech geek and investing in ADA and investing in Bitcoin and ETH and, and all that. So it, they are becoming legitimized. Believe me, the government, if the government wants to tax us on it, it's a legitimate, <laughs> a legitimate means of accepting money. So um, crypto is coming. Um, stay tuned for some NAMA announcements. You have no other hands at this time. Are there any advantages to crypto versus using cards or cash? Money's money, no. It's so new, I think most people are a little leery about um, using it. <laughs> well, remember to crypto converts to U.S. dollar. So it doesn't, and everybody is always looking to see, okay, a Bitcoin is worth $46,000, right? But it's still a conversion. So crypto is money. It's just a different kind. Can I can I ask a really, really dumb question? And there are no dumb <laughs> questions, just dumb answers. On this crypto thing. So if I own crypto, how do I pay with it? How does this work? I, I'm, I'm just so uninformed about the crypto system. Well, that's the cool thing is that there are um, many, many um, wallets coming out. Um, okay. I, I have like four or five myself. One of them is Coinbase. One of them is um, CC Vault. 
Um, I have Bakht. Bakht is a really interesting one because it actually will take your loyalty points um, from like Starbucks or from um, from any of the hotel chains and convert that to cash. So it's really just a, wallets that are coming out that speak using that NFC, the same the same near field communication that Apple Pay, Android Pay, and Samsung Pay use. Crypto okay. wallets will be using that as well. So okay. it does the conversion rate and then transacts. Okay. So okay. so as as a um, vending machine operator. I wouldn't recognize that payment from uh, Apple Pay or anything else. It's all going to look the same. And um, it will probably will probably be able to, as we do with Apple Pay, um, Android Pay, Samsung Pay, and any sort of contact list. We do separate those out in the reporting, so you know what percentage of okay. sales are happening that way. But okay. no, you won't see the difference because it's still U.S. dollars we're depositing in your bank account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. I, I I'm still learning. Hey, we okay. all are. You, you do have a hand raised. Ronald, you may unmute. Ronald, you're unmuted. If you're on the computer, it's Alt-A. If you're on your iPhone or a smartphone, it is in the lower left. Uh, am I? Okay, you, good. Yep. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Uh, I'm new in, I'm new in this, uh, Cantaloupe business or connection. I just started December last year and I've been receiving my seed live report. Happy to read the, the data that I've been getting, except when it's too low. Uh, I've been getting a lot of emails regarding yoke. Can you please uh, explain what is yoke features, pricing, um, what it's used for? Sure. Um, yoke is a micromarket. Um, Cantaloupe acquired yoke micromarkets um, a little while ago. And Yoke is designed to be a micromarket for the smaller operator. It can be um, a tablet on a stand um, or a tablet on a countertop um, stand. Um, it is a means of putting a micromarket in a closed environment um, so that you can expand the products that you offer and people can go ahead and purchase using that micromarket. Micromarkets, as I'm sure you guys know, are pretty active, but Yoke is um, very cost effective. We will be including that in our new Cantaloupe One program with um, no cost um, as oh. well and service fees only. Oh. So stay tuned for more information about, you're seeing information about Yoke in the market itself. There will be um, more coming out about our new um, get equipment for free, basically. Oh, good to know. Thank you. Sure. Francis, did you want to talk about um, your micromarket systems? Absolutely. So for us, um, par level, we do have two uh, micromarket solutions. We have a max kiosk and a mini. Um, the mini kiosk is more in line with what Cantaloupe's offering of Yoke is. Um, it's the smaller footprint 
for, you know, an office setting, um, if you're worried about having cash acceptance on the kiosk, um, the mini kiosk um, does not take cash. So it's like kind of like a, a speedier um, checkout solution. And then we have our max kiosk, which is the one that takes both cash and card. It's our bigger model. Um, you can put it into uh, larger locations. So um, par level, like I mentioned in the beginning, at the end of the day, is a, is a software solution. Uh, so we are able to manage vending, office coffee, micromarkets. We have a dining solution called Cater. Um, so any of you guys that are running um, lunch rooms, cafeterias, those sorts of things, we do have um, a solution for you that would act as sort of like as an employee where you walk up and order things off of a menu and then it goes back into the kitchen and it prints out a ticket and, and that's like you would at like McDonald's or Taco Bell and that type of thing. Um, and then we have a smart cooler called Hub. So we're able to manage everything under one roof rather than having multiple systems um, to be able to get a full picture of your business. Hi, this is Kathy. It's really exciting to see um, Francis in person. Um, Hi, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> I am I'm from Iowa and um, just as... Uh, this one person came on and said he was new. And so I know that there are a lot of people who are struggling. Uh, well, he, I've never had to use computers before. And so I'm wondering what beyond, this is the good of everybody, what beyond the initial training um, is there for folks who are still trying to catch up with that concept of um, dealing with your customers from a remote, using all the remote benefits that is coming with COVID and cashless? So, um Kathy, is that question for me or for Bunny or for both of us? Well, for both for both of you, because I think I, I would imagine that we're not the only folks who are having people just learning how to use a computer. And there's so much there and it's um, a challenge to learn it. And what can you guys, what are you guys doing or able to do to help um, folks become comfortable with that and to maximize it? All right, so um, we we were heavily doing um, some marketing stuff there for a while with videos, you know, kind of like being able to show people how, especially for micro markets, showing them how to use the kiosk. Um, we always encourage more training on the back end side. So we have um, our CS team all have um, electronic links for you guys to be, because there's never a limit to amounts of training that you can use, and especially with learning our new products and features. Um, to be able to kind of continue like educating like yourself as well as being able to help your um, locations with, um, you know, learning, especially new employees that are coming in, learning how to use the kiosk. Is that what you, is that what you're asking? Sort of, am I answering your question? Yes. Okay. And how people go about doing that for both of your companies. Yeah. Um, I, I can answer that as well. Um, no matter whether you are using Seed Live simply for transactional cash and cashless reporting, or if you are using Seed Cashless Plus, which is the VIN management solution um, from Cantaloupe, uh, both of those portals have a whole series of um, videos and auditory tracks that can assist you with any sort of reporting. Additionally, we do have, um, I believe there are 10 people on our app support team. We have 40 people in our customer support 
team and sales reps and account managers. Most of the um, the BEPs across the country have been assigned an account manager as well with us um, to assist with just this sort of training. So um, definitely, if you have any questions, concerns, would like to set up some training, you could reach out to us and we can assist you with that as well. Bunny, earlier you had mentioned that um, there were different conversion rates for different types of coin. Or did you just mean for different sizes of transactions? I just wanted to be clear on that. Um, I was just basically talking about right now, you know how when you take a look and see that a Bitcoin is worth this much today? Everybody, it's a common exchange how much Bitcoin is worth this day. Um, I don't know what exchange rates wallets themselves use, but... Rest assured that if you are going to receive payment um, for a product out of one of your machines or one of your micromarkets using crypto, um, we will automatically just convert it. The partner that we're going to be using is a wallet just like that that will automatically do that conversion right to U.S. dollars so that you're paid in U.S. dollars. Okay, Anthony, you may unmute. Uh, just for quick quickly comment on the value. Uh, perhaps uh, we could just accept stable coins. They they uh, they keep pace with the US dollar or euros or whatever. So there's stable coins out there that um, you don't have to worry about the wild fluctuations in the market. But like I, I hope that they apply something like we give us the option to accept ETH or something like that because there's the possibility that it will with more experience acceptance, you can raise uh, the, the, the value of the coin will go up, but that's a risk that you assume. But there are things like, I'm sure you know, there's stable coins out there that uh, you don't know. Oh, have yeah. To about yeah. The, there are stable coins out there. And I think right now, um, what our company is intending on doing, we, we announced about a year ago, a partnership with a company called Bakht, B-A-K-K-T. Bakht is, um, is a company that has a wallet that um, allows you to buy ETH and, and Bitcoin and, and um, some of the other cryptocurrencies. But it largely converts things like um, gift cards, loyalty points. So it's more along the uh, loyalty uh, mechanism, which some people still today consider funny money. Others, other people don't. So there's they they are working on that platform that is going to convert some of that loyalty. It's more of a gift card type platform, which would be a little bit more stable because it does relate to the U.S. dollar. So we'll see where all of this goes, Anthony. Um, my husband is, um, you know, researching stable coins as well. Um, we have um, our new, um, C well, not new, our existing chief technical officer and COO actually came from the crypto space. So um, it, it, there'll be lots and lots and lots of um, webinars, Q&As, and a lot of details about cryptocurrency coming. Uh, what would each of you feel is the biggest question most people have when they uh, contact you about um, setting up any type of system with the cashless and telemetry. Could you give us some of the basic questions most people have and and how you answer those? Because I think sometimes we talk to people like everybody knows everything, and I'm sure we have a lot of newer 
you know, vendors here that maybe haven't dealt with having to purchase it for the first time. Go ahead, Francis. Yeah, the, well, the number one question I get, um, not being funny, but totally serious, is will it work on my vending machine? <laughs> so, um, and then once it's established that it will, then from there, um, we go into pricing, of course. Um, but I mean, a lot of times with like people who are kind of getting into it, like they're wanting to know like what kind of value they're going to get out of the credit card reader, like how much they would be expecting in um, sales lists. I always recommend people if they're kind of debating on if they're wanting to put credit card readers on machines is to put a few on their busiest machines and but also put a few on their slowest machines and see what kind of um, just increase in sales you can get from that. Um, and then we also I always talk about like the benefits of once you put the credit card reader on there, being able to get all that data and getting a firm hold on not just running your business, but I mean, your profit and loss because all your money's in your product. And if you're scaling out a bunch of product, well, maybe time to pull that one out of that machine because it's not doing well type thing. So for me, aside after it will it work on my machine and how much does it cost is why a credit card reader? What kind of value am I getting out of this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's been a, um, I've been in the business now for 12 years now. And initially, um, it was a discussion I had with every operator to discuss what kind of lift they would see from cashless. Um, back in uh, 12 years ago, the lift was about 18 to 20% um, were from credit and debit card sales. That being said, um, I'll tell you all, I'm 50, almost 52. My kid is 16. My kid doesn't even know what cash is. Um, she doesn't use it. So we've seen over the last 12 years or so an incredible lift in cashless sales, particularly escalated by COVID um, because nobody wants to touch anything. Um, so that lift is right now on average, it's in the 45 to 60% cashless. Um, if you don't have cashless on your machines, you are missing out in revenue because you aren't reaching your audience. Um, you never want to not accept payment at a machine because you need to get every penny you possibly can from those customers. That being said, Francis was definitely correct. It's important for you to have a Venn management solution on your machine um, that will tell you um, any machine alerts, bill validator alerts, coin mech jams, um, any sort of product outages. What are your best selling products? What are, are your um, worst selling products? Do you need to get to that machine? Gas is expensive. If you've got a machine that's 45 minutes away, wouldn't it be great to know that you don't have to go and you can wait another day? That is the benefit of having a Venn management solution to sit there and just take a, take a gander at what you've got um, and what you've sold and whether you need to visit that um, location or not. Okay. Well, would each of you like to give uh, just a few final thoughts and then we'll go on. Um, I want to thank you all um, for your business. I recognize so many names here. I know so many of you. Um, I, I appreciate your business. My team and I do. Um, just because I'm not directly working with everybody now and working more or more so on the organizational side, um, Bunny hasn't gone anywhere. So please, please, please call me. 
um, email me. I am available should you need anything. And I will introduce you to your salesperson if you haven't met them or any one of our support people. Um, thank you very much for your time. You all are very gracious. And Francis, I'll leave it to you. Um, I too would like to thank the you guys for um, inviting Par Level to speak today. Um, the the conferences that I do get to go to, either at a national or a state level, are always some of my favorites. Um, I really enjoy um, my my BEP crew. Uh, I have a number of operators, not so much with um, the bay management side, but. Um, micromarkets are definitely the up and comer with you guys. And so I have a number of operators myself. So I always enjoy um, these conferences as well because I too, I've not been in the industry as long as Bunny has, but I also recognize a number of um, names on our roster here for this chat. So um, again, thank you so much for your time today and for having us um, join you guys. I wish I was in Las Vegas. Uh, so we can go out and uh, <laughs> have a drink. Uh, maybe next year, eventually, blast the sagebrush. You guys want to? We're going to have an in-person meeting eventually. I hope. <laughs> we we so, will see you next year at Sagebrush for sure. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I will be there, Scott, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all going to enjoy uh, doing that again. Uh, that's oh, all of us miss that interactive. Well, now we're going to go for a short break, and during the break, we're going to be listening to a video about Non-24 from Vanda Pharmaceuticals, if you're not aware of that condition. Hello, Randolph Shepherd Sagebrush. My name is Shauna Jatho. I'm a clinical nurse educator with Vanda Pharmaceuticals. My role as a nurse educator is to increase awareness on this very rare condition that affects mainly individuals who are totally blind but you can have some vision and still develop this very rare condition. Non-24 circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder. That's the full condition name. It's narrowed to non-24 for short, easier term to remember and understand. So if you have difficulty sleeping at night or difficulty staying awake during the day, this may be related to your blindness. The three main symptoms of non-24 is difficulty falling asleep at night, difficulty maintaining that sleep, you know, being able to get a full night's sleep, and or difficulty staying awake during the day where you may experience having to take naps or uh, it's difficult trying to stay awake during the day or to the other extreme where you're falling asleep uncontrollably. These symptoms with non-24 can come and go. We describe it as being cyclical in nature. So there may be some days and nights where you don't have any difficulty falling asleep or staying awake. Um, other times where it is a struggle. And during those times when it's a struggle, that's when it may be affecting the quality of your life. That could be physically, socially, emotionally, mentally. Um, because non-24 is a rare chronic disorder. So meaning chronic, that over time, that may start to affect the quality of your life. How non-24 happens, just to give you a little general overview, is individuals that have this condition, 
either are not able to perceive any light perception or enough light perception through their eyes to get that signal to our brain to tell us when it's day and when it's night. So if we're not able to perceive any or enough light perception, that can lead to those three main symptoms of non-24. Like I mentioned, it affects mainly individuals who are totally blind, up to 70%, but you can have some light perception and still develop non-24. So if you're struggling with a routine sleep pattern and have been struggling with this for some time, it's affecting the quality of your life, or you may just be interested in learning more about non-24 because you may not have heard of it, you can reach out to me directly at 202-538-0396. And that way I can get you connected with one of our health educators. The importance of our health educators is they're there to provide you further information and education on non-24. They can also set up one of our account managers to go in and talk with your healthcare professional about non-24 because like I mentioned, it's so rare, your healthcare provider may not have heard of this condition. So our health educators are there to further educate you, also set up our account manager to educate your healthcare provider. They can mail you, email you literature um, so that you can do your own research. Um, you have that continued support with our health educator. So if you would like to learn more about non-24, please call me 202-538-0396. Again, my name is Shauna Jatho, one of the clinical nurse educators with Vanda. I look forward to meeting many of you um, virtually during the convention or over the phone. Enjoy the convention. Thank you. Pandemics from and the fact that we survived the 1980, 1918 Spanish flu pandemic as a company. Um, and we have, our company has evolved over the years, um, but in 1952, uh, we developed the uh, contract management, contractor uh, division, of what was then called the National Baking and Lunch Company. And uh, so we, the National Baking and Lunch Company was a retail chain of restaurants um, that had about 20 locations and they uh, started doing government contracting during World War II, during the 1940s. And in 1952, they decided uh, they had enough contracts and started getting some private industry contracts and that they would uh, spin off and that business into a separate entity and um, operate it separately than their retail operations. So um, that was when the Southern Food Service was born uh, in 1952 as a separate entity. And since that time, we have uh, grown and methodically grown and uh, have been operating uh, in several different uh, areas, one of, one of being which uh, 
federal contracting. And uh, since all of our, uh, virtually all of our contracts in uh, the federal sector are with Randolph Shepherd Teaming Partners, uh, we decided to change our name to uh, aptly call ourselves Southern Teaming Partners. Uh, the other part of that is that when we would come to conferences and meet new uh, meet new people and people who were not aware of us uh, that they would inevitably think that we were a food supplier or were selling some sort of food um, and they would inevitably want to know why we didn't have samples at our booth. So we decided that we needed to uh, call ourselves what we really are and that is teaming partners and that is our focus, is providing that teaming service to Randolph Shepard um, suppliers and vendors, managers, and state licensing agencies. So anyhow, um, we operate in that sector. We operate military. Uh, we operate contracts for the Army uh, and uh, you know, with with the state, uh, the blind vendors and the and the state licensing agencies, uh, Coast Guard, uh, and the um, Air Force, and uh, we also, um, you know, unlike a lot of uh, uh, the other teaming partners, we also operate in non-allocated funds contracts or contracts that are. Uh, not military, non-DOD. Um, so we operate for the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Energy. Uh, we operate with um, uh, GSA, and we have several uh, contracts with different uh, partners in GSA facilities. And so that is... You know, we, we operate a wide variety of federal contracts and we can team on contracts that some of the other teaming partners do not do. And that is, you know, the non-DOD contracts that uh, are more for, um, you know, non-allocated funds, which means that, you know, we're operating and, and there are there is no government federally taxpayer assistance or funds provided for those contracts. Um, we strictly have to provide our service and sell our food and uh, make money. So we are specialists in that regard, in that, in, uh, in that type of arrangement. Um, we operate, for instance, uh, just started a new partnership in West Virginia with the, the great folks of West Virginia uh, and the, uh, Jimmy Ackers there in in West Virginia. And we are operating the Federal Bureau of Investigation facility there, their fingerprint and computer IT office. Uh, and they do several functions there, but it's a large facility. And uh, it is more of an office environment. And, um, and that is kind of where we specialize in those, in those kind of contracts. So uh, Jimmy had 
run the vending and micromarkets there for a number of years and uh you know i think 20 plus and the food uh service contract came out and he approached us about partnering on it partnering on it so we uh we did that and were successful in getting the contract and um are now operating there so one of the big things uh also that we do a lot you know a lot of our business like that uh is still shut down because of the pandemic um and that's both in the federal and private industry so the gsa contracts we have are all in government office buildings and those contracts are are still idle and and uh, non-performing at this point in time um, so fortunately, we have other lines of business that we operate, and that's another thing that Southern brings to the table uh, is we have a breadth of knowledge uh, in other areas that we feel like brings a lot of strengths uh, to the Randolph Shepherd world. For instance, we operate in schools. Um, we, we operate some retirement homes, uh, and we operate some stadiums, including uh, Bryant-Denny Stadium and and, uh, Tuscaloosa Roll Tide. And um, that that breadth of knowledge and uh, experience, I think, gives us uh, strength. We're not single-focused, and we bring different perspectives and angles and ideas to the table. Uh, uh, One of our main lines of business is in uh, corporate, you know, private industry corporate accounts. And uh, those accounts consist of office buildings, um, in private industry office buildings and uh, factories. Now the factories, they're operating, they're, they're still going and um, you know, we're, we're operating in those environments, but the business, uh, the office buildings, very few of those have reopened. Um, so the, we do have a fair amount of our business that is still idle, unfortunately. Um, and, but that gives you an overview of our company and specifically what Southern Teaming Partners does in the Randolph Shepherd community. And, uh, I don't know if, uh, my time, I haven't been timing myself, so I don't, now, Artis, you stop me if I'm at my <laughs> limit. No, you're you're doing great. You're about at the end of your time, and I really appreciate all your overview because I didn't realize you were in so many different uh, types of business. I knew you were, you know, some different, but that that was a great overview. I really appreciate that, and I look forward to hearing you uh, later in your uh, longer uh, presentation. Great. And I'm looking forward to this next section. Um, it's going to be how BEP programs have reset during the last two years. Yes. Yeah. And we have uh, Chris Mazza from Nevada. He's the bureau chief there. And we have Nathan Pullen from Arizona, he's the BEP director there. 
And we have William Merchant from Mississippi. And he's the BEP director there. And I look forward to hearing from all of you because I've heard you've all done some great things. So I'm not sure who wants to be up first. I'll leave that up to you. Thank you for the time and for inviting the artists. It's nice to be here again. Uh, I just got done speaking about the RSA 15 yesterday. I know that's very exciting for everyone. So hopefully the uh, non-financial bit here will be a little bit more exciting too. Uh, we have certainly had to reset and pivot here in Arizona. And honestly, we are still figuring some of it out like many of you are. Uh, the biggest impact from COVID in Arizona was on our food service locations. As many of you have been affected as well. Uh, virtually all of our food service businesses closed. Uh, vending for the most part stayed open but had limited populations in our government buildings with so many folks working from home. There was a statewide initiative for the state of Arizona where the bulk of our facilities are located uh, and most state of Arizona staff are still on telework and that's actually expected to continue indefinitely for many positions and offices. So that will be a long-term impact and that is definitely something that we have had to adapt to and are still figuring out how to adapt to here. Uh, one of the things that has come from that is that we are seeing a shift in the utilization of our government buildings. One thing that they are doing with the state of Arizona is shifting away from the full-time office model, uh, even though they have many folks on telework, they're trying to open it up with a more in-between option with a hybrid telework model but not having folks assigned to individual offices or locations. So we have started to set up some uh, shared or hoteling type workstations in some different government buildings, uh, at least in the Phoenix metro area. And so that is giving state workers the opportunity to come into a quiet, dedicated workplace where there's a, a workstation set up with a docking station and they can sit down and have access to computers and printers and all of the resources and tech support help that they may need if they need to do a virtual meeting or work quietly uh, away from kids that may be at home or other distractions uh, when it fits into their schedule. Um, obviously, that is difficult for us to manage from a vending or food service perspective when the population you're building is no longer static. We don't have those same Monday through Friday to five type of workers anymore. We now have workers that are coming in maybe one day a week or a couple days a week for a few hours in the middle of a, of a day. So that is for us making food service that is attended less and less viable. And so what we've been working on is switching our scope of service and converting some locations to micro markets. Uh, the example of the hoteling type stations that I mentioned, we have micro markets set up in those buildings. Uh, it's been a slow start since we can't really predict the level of population in these buildings, but we are working on getting markets built out and expanding the options there. Uh, we've actually been in discussions of potentially providing additional services on top of the micro markets as well where there has been a demand for food service, but we know it's not practical to provide uh, staffed service at a cafeteria level, we've been working on possible options for partnering with organizations like FUDA. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them. I just had a meeting with one of our county administrators last week to convert one of our county cafeteria buildings over to a micro market so that there can be grab and go options. We will also be having food to come in to provide lunch services. Uh, we had a full scale cafeteria there that's just no longer going to be a viable option for us to operate for breakfast and lunch five days a week. 
So converting to this micromarket format with Buddha coming in a couple of days a week, the busiest days, typically uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, are what we find uh, for those core hours to be the, the best lunch times. We have found with hybrid and telework that most folks that are flexing their time or coming to offices intermittently tend to have Mondays and Fridays as their preferred work from home or flex days. So if you're trying to capture that peak level of uh, customer population, you want to get that in the middle of the week is what we've found. Uh, we're still feeling that out and seeing what the growth curve is, but that is the direction that we are working towards. And so far, we are hopeful that that will work for us. Uh, it's certainly not going to be back to the level that food service had been with full-scale cafeterias, but if we can get folks in the door with something like FUDA, even if the commission isn't huge, that gives us an opportunity to sell other items in our micro-markets. Uh, one of the other things I would mention related to that is that we have worked out a non-compete with FUDA so that when they come in to do a, a pop-up lunch, for example, the the local honey bear barbecue joint may be coming in, for example, and they would come in and they would sell their barbecue sandwich, they would sell their macaroni or their side dishes, but they're not going to sell chips, they're not going to sell bottled beverages or the items that we have in the micro markets. So that creates an opportunity for the blind vendor to capture that sale through their market. So those are some of the, the higher level things that we're doing related to food service. Uh, we are working on some other uh, initiatives as well beyond changing scope of service and adding markets and doing food uh, or food. Uh, one of the other issues that we've had here in Arizona is that during the pandemic, there was an executive order from our governor's office, which allowed for the operation of food trucks at the highway rest areas. This is something that has never been permissible before. Obviously, we have vending at these rest areas, uh, but in the beginning of the pandemic, when many of the local restaurants and truck stops were shut down, this initiative was put into place to allow truck drivers an opportunity to get something to eat. Uh, unfortunately, that has still been operating, so we are working on trying to come up with our own alternatives to that so that we can have a better opportunity to capture that revenue for our blind vendor. We are certainly still running the vending machines at our rest areas, but we are looking into purchasing or operating a hot dog cart, as an example, that is one of the popular items that seems to have been popping up at our local rest areas from outside vendors. So we are trying to work with our Department of Transportation to have those outside food truck permits revoked so that we can operate those locations ourselves. And lastly, one of the other items that we are working on, uh, since we too are working remotely as BEP staff, for the most part, uh, we do typically have someone in the office every day to receive reports or to allow vendors come in to pick up parts or drop things off if needed. Uh, but most of our staff are working remotely as well. Uh, and we do not expect that to change. The directive from the governor's office here in Arizona has been that most staff are expected to remain on telework indefinitely and the state is actually closing several offices uh, and releasing the leases that they had on private buildings as they're no longer needed so the state is looking at this as a money saving budget saving opportunity so we are having to adapt to that as well uh, with our staff working remotely they are still accessible in the same way but we are working on implementing a new ticketing system for our maintenance and repair and work orders to allow our operators and customers to better be able to put in uh, work orders and have them processed more efficiently without having to wait to speak with someone in the office. So that's the broad overview of the some things that are going on in Arizona. And I will turn a little bit of the time over to the rest of the panelists or offer up for any questions that anyone may have for me. I'd like to ask one quick question, Nathan. 
What 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 do you see for the next uh, year or two here? Do you see sales uh, slowly coming back, or do you think things will just kind of hop into gear? Any feel yet for where you may be? That's a really good question, Scott, and, and it's really hard to answer because every time somebody's asked me that, my answer has been, "Well, maybe next month we'll reopen." <laughs> and I've been saying that for two years now. So, you know, I just talked to one of our operators, Tim, today. Uh, he actually runs the cafeteria at uh, what would be considered my home office, sort of at our our state licensing agency's uh, mother office at the Department of Economic Security. Uh, we got a request from our director asking us to reopen, and we're looking at the population there and kind of saying it, it's not really worthwhile. We, we want to open too, but until there's enough people there, uh, we don't want to put a, our operator in a position where they're losing money or where the agency is having to deal with bare minimum claims and the like. So there are things that we've been doing to support our operators in that endeavor. We have, uh, over the course of the pandemic, we provided inventory relief for product that went bad previously that wasn't able to be used. We, of course, had FRRP funds and we used some other internal uh, surplus set-aside funds as well to provide a form of uh, internal unemployment insurance of sorts uh, to help keep our operators afloat during the pandemic period. And those funds have mostly been exhausted at this point. So we really are working or pushing towards getting reopened in locations where it makes sense. What we're doing is just sort of a tiered approach. So that cafeteria that I had just mentioned, it's probably not going to be practical for us to open the entire location. This was a large cafeteria in a building with over 1,500 people. It had a full-service grill. It had an entree station. It had a salad bar. has a small coffee shop. Uh, there's a Starbucks kiosk there as well. We know it's not going to be at the level that we can reopen the full thing. So what we're doing uh, or planning to do is at, by the end of next month, we're going to open up just Starbucks and just the grill. So customers can come in. They can get a freshly made sandwich or item at the grill. They can go over and order a drink and have their purchase rung up by the cashier at the coffee shop. That saves us some labor because we're not having to run other cashier stations and we're not having to run the entree station or the salad bar that obviously you don't want people having their hands in in the public environment right now. So those are some of those little adaptations. Uh, we expect to see that same sort of level over the next year where we just slowly reopen in phases with maybe one station or one section of a facility at a time, get a feel for the sales. And hopefully if it is supported, then we can continue to expand from there. Uh, we've also had some consolidation and I think that will happen more as well. Uh, we never like to close or lose facilities, but in cases where it makes sense, it's better to combine two facilities that have become marginal than to lose one or the other entirely. So that's something we've been doing as well. This same uh, cafeteria example that I mentioned, we unfortunately lost the operator across the street at our state capitol uh, that has a coffee shop and some vending as well. But because of the changes that have come from the pandemic, that facility will likely no longer be viable. So we're looking at combining the two of them into one, having one operator that can have similar staff that can run two locations side by side and save them some efficiency on their labor. Those are the types of changes that we see for the most part coming forward is consolidating, combining facilities, dialing back that scope of service or converting to markets, uh, looking at some Pico coolers as well as an upgraded option, especially in many of these hybrid work locations where we know folks want lunch or fresh food items, but it maybe won't support a full-size market. And lastly, we are also trying to go after more military uh, and Department of Defense opportunities and contracts. We have found that those have obviously been profitable uh, for state agencies for a long time in larger military dining facilities. 
that type of facility is more important than ever now uh, when we have food service locations that are just not making the kind of money that they did in the past. We have to shift our, our form of business and that means going after new contracts and new services. So we are engaging in negotiations with the Air National Guard to take on some additional bases here in Arizona. Uh, we also have other sites that will be coming up in the next couple of years that we plan to bid on uh, for an Air Force base and a Marine base uh, when the current contracts end. Well, great. It's always it's always good to have some options out there in the future. It's that's very encouraging. It just takes time, unfortunately. Yeah, it does. It does. But uh, yeah. Well, thank you for answering my question. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. This is uh, Chris Mazza. I'm the BEP director for State of Nevada, and uh, I mean honestly, Nathan said a lot, and I echo a lot of his sentiments. And I think we're all in that same boat, right? I mean, we have. Uh, a combination of, of things going on in, in all the buildings down here. Um, you know, whether it's a teleworking situation, whether it's a part-time work from home situation, whether we've had a, a lot of cities, uh, city of Henderson, Clark County, city of Las Vegas, all switch to four day work weeks. And you know, when you take 20% of your business out of the work week, um, you know, how do you deal with that? And it's really, uh, it's tough. I mean, I don't, I'm probably not saying anything that, that anybody else isn't dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, as are we. But, um, you know, looking forward, that four-day work break is not going to go anywhere. The teleworking is probably not going to go anywhere. You know, the three days in the office, two days at home isn't going to go anywhere. So, you know, what are we going to do moving forward and how do we adapt? Um, micro markets have been a tremendous help for all of us. Uh, they continue to be a tremendous help. Um, whether, and again, I agree with Nathan, whether we're, we're moving a full service cafeteria or cafe into a micro market uh, because of the volume of the building is down, uh, that's been a, a tremendous help for us. Conversely, we can do it the other way. If you've got, you know, we, we've done it where we've seen vending uh, in certain buildings that we've taken the vending machines and converted uh, an area into a micro market there going the, going the other way where you can, you know, maybe the profit margin is down a little bit, but the sales uh, certainly go up, you know, when you go from, from vending to a market. And we can see sales that maybe don't go up or at least flat uh, when we convert from vending machines to micro markets. Um, that's certainly been helpful. Uh, additionally, you know, what we're looking to do in, in is upgrade any of the, the facilities that seem to have remained the same uh, to see how we can increase sales in those particular locations. Uh, we've been fortunate that, you know, our, our biggest location and, and baddest location, the Hoover Dam, um, even without tours, uh, even without uh, with a, a mask mandate, a federal mask mandate still in place down at the dam, we've seen numbers remain fairly consistent or at least come back in the last 12 months uh, from where they were pre-pandemic. Um, that's great for the three operators that we have down there. Uh, also looking at, you know, how can we increase down there? What can we do down there to, to make it better, to increase sales, to get more people down there, to take advantage of, of what we do have going on there? Uh, same with, with the DM, we have DMVs, cafes and DMVs. Um, when the pandemic first started, uh, those DMVs were shut down. Everything was going uh, online. Um, thankfully, that's kind of back to normal. But again, you hear rumblings of, well, it kind of worked when the pandemic started where a multitude of services were online. You know, maybe we'll go back to that online model in the future. So, you know, that's always in the back of your head. Another thing that's been successful with us is some 
partnerships with local businesses, um, <clears throat> whether it be local uh, local businesses here in Las Vegas, local businesses up in, in Carson City or Reno. Um, and what we're doing here is, is taking kind of a snack bar model and partnering an operator with that local business. So that local business is coming in with their name, uh, their brand recognition, their following, their uh, social media base, uh, websites and, and things of that nature coming into our space, working with the operator. Um, and it's working in a number of ways. We're either uh, partnering with the sales where, where one will, will pay a percentage to the other in sales, or we'll divide up the menu and say, okay, I'm going to sell this and you're going to sell this. And that's kind of how that's going to work. So that's been really successful in, in a couple of locations because what they're able to do is because they have that brand recognition and that brand name and that social media presence already, they're able to draw, you know, not just people who work in the building, they're able to draw from outside and, and regular customers, um, you know, that may just be walking by or know that they have this location now, or maybe it's closer to their house, or maybe it's closer to their business, where they're going to go visit that spot because they've been there before and they understand it and they recognize the need. So that's been, that's been great for us as well. And we continue to do that. Um, you know, in, in the other thing that, you know, looking outside the box for any opportunities that might be out there, I think has been really important and will continue to be important. Um, we have a conservation here, a conservation area here in Las Vegas, and there is a small gift shop that's on this conservation area and it's run by a nonprofit organization. Um, they don't sell any food or beverage. So we have approached, you know, that facility um, to talk about food and beverage, what, what we can do to add services to that facility. Uh, to add services to the customers that come there. So uh, we're in talks with them in the process of adding a, a manned micromarket, if you will, right? So it's going to be a, a micromarket, but it's going to have a cashier. Um, so it'll have an employee there to kind of, because it's it's a public space and, you know, with a micromarket, obviously, you know, theft is that issue in a public space. Um, this will be manned and it's going to offer a lot of great services to the facility. It's going to offer, you know, some fresh food items. It's going to offer beverages and drinks and, and uh, other snacks and chips, uh, not only for their employees, but for the guests who are, you know, coming to that facility. So uh, again, that's just, you know, where can we go outside of the box that maybe we wouldn't normally think of, maybe somebody that, that has services already, but how can we add on to that? How can we make that place even better? And then, you know, lastly, uh, again, to Nathan's point, combining locations. Um, you know, we had three locations in Carson City um, that were all individual sites on their own, but over the last couple of years, those are not sustainable any longer. So those three locations became one location. Um, you know, it's a sustainable business at that level for one person, um, which is great. Uh, again, we never want to you know close any facilities, um, but uh, combining facilities that are in proximity to each other has also um, been working for us. So, um, you know, moving forward, what do we see kind of answer Scott's question? I think a lot of the same. I think a lot of, you know, we, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we've had sites that have come back to pre-pandemic or even better than pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and then we've also had sites that, you know, there's nobody in the building any longer. So, I mean, it's really it's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, we've had... Unfortunately, we had four operators pass away in the last two years and two more retire. Um, so, you know, to lose six people in 24 months, 
certainly a tremendous blow to the program. So, you know, we continue to develop sites and develop operators to, to keep the program rolling. Um, but again, just that's why these things, these, these conventions are important. Uh, obviously, it'd be better to be in person, but, you know, to share best practices and to see what everybody else is doing, that's, that's what keeps us going and, and keeps us rolling because you just, you know, you get a lot of great ideas that way. So, again, that out-of-the-box thinking um, is going to be what's going to keep us, you know, our heads above water moving forward. All right. How's everybody? Good. Great. Oh, like, just like everybody else, I wish I was in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'd, I'd just like to start by telling Nate, Nathan, that I'm jealous that he's been teleworking for over two years and I've been in the office. <laughs> All right. In Mississippi, what we decided to do, just like every other state, we was losing locations. Locations was shutting down, not reopening for the obvious reasons. <clears throat> so the VRB director and myself, we just got together and say, hey, let's do something different. Let's get more aggressive in going after private locations. We sent letters to all of our 82 counties uh, here in Mississippi, the county administrators. We <clears throat> sent letters to sheriff, police chiefs, everybody we can think of to send a letter to we sent letters to Board of Supervisors. Uh, we have, we've attended several Board of Supervisors conventions and meetings in, in their counties to solicit uh, locations. I will say since the pandemic, we have opened up 35 new locations. Um, 17 of them is private locations. Uh, which consists of hotels, casinos, car dealerships. Actually, we had a meeting with the Lottery Commission on last week to secure a location there. Um, you know, apartment complexes, what, whatever it takes to, to get these locations to add on to existing vendors, um, locations to help them out in doing this pandemic. We got a um, commitment from the Department of Corrections for four locations that the state has taken over. Um, we've opened up one of the facilities. Um, next month, we open up the second one. <clears throat> and, and hopefully the next month, we open up the third one. And, and next month, we open up the fourth location. Um, just like everybody else, micro markets, it really has come into play with us. We have actually turned three traditional vending facilities into micro markets, and sales has most definitely increased in those facilities. Um, as Chris said earlier, uh, I think it was Chris and Nathan was talking about their state office. Our state office cafeteria is not open either, but we did put a micro market in there so they could have a better choice other than chips and drinks. And that market is taken off and the blind vendor at that location <clears throat> is doing, doing well. Um, as far as branded partnership, we did partnership with the cop coffee company also, as Nevada was talking about. 
Um, and hopefully we get them in a second location to team up with a blind vendor um, that have a cafeteria. Um, and I think that'll be a great opportunity because there's no coffee shops in that area. And it's in the downtown area here in Mississippi or in Jackson. And that, that would be tremendous. Um, but just thinking outside of the box, <clears throat> we, we had to just come up with some ideas to increase the income on the blind vendor and actually to even come up with new ideas. Um, you know, and, and we just got out there and worked, but it just, just like everybody else, we all going through it. <laughs> as, as Scott asked, asked the question, we don't know when we'll be full, full fledged again. Um, but the only thing we can do is get out there and work for the blind vendor to ensure they have a sufficient income coming in. And we're, we're traveling all over the state of Mississippi um to to visit the companies and ensure that the blind vendor gets the opportunity to do either the vending or cafeteria work. But as we know, cafeterias has faded by the wayside. And um the in income dropped at some of them, you know, 50, 60 percent. Even some of our prisons, uh, federal locations, um They've been closed for two years. So we had to create for that vendor there. We did create him um, a vending route. Uh, it was a little bit further than he had to, had to go to his original route, but he got, I think we got him maybe 10, 11 locations that he was servicing. So um, we just decided to get more aggressive going after um private locations because, you know, hotels, they have vending machines. Somebody have to service them. And once you tell them about the Randolph Shepherd program, they're like, okay, we'll go with you. Um, I, I would love to get some micro markets in there, but one, one hotel I did speak to about it, they wasn't so sure on the security part and they, they kind of backed off of it. Um, car dealerships. You can say everybody go buy a vehicle, but when you go buy a vehicle, look at your vending machines. Um, I looked, I took my daughter to get her a car a couple of months ago. They had nice vending machines in there. And I said, well, I'm in the vending business. I need these machines. But they had a, they had a contract. So I said, after this contract, we need we need to we need to talk. So that's that's what we're teaching our vendors is to if you go out and if you see something, you know, here's the message that you need to relate to them, and then they can call me and we can go out and do a site visit to make sure that you know it's, it's a valuable site. So that's pretty much what we're doing here in Mississippi um, to 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 reset, you know. We'll be resetting for probably a couple more years, but to to get the vendors um, that's in dire need of a upgrade on income, that's what some of the things that we've been been doing here in Mississippi. Wow, 
Terrific. I, I do have a couple questions for you specifically. Uh, hearing that you've been a little more aggressive with uh, placing vending machines, et cetera. Uh, tell me about a little bit about uh, has the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the upset in the supply chain for some of the vending machine manufacturers. Have you been having problems getting equipment to put in these locations? Do you have enough uh, folks that uh, will accept those businesses, et cetera? Um, that's, a, that's a two part, that's a yes and no answer, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, I, what I do, I, I would call the vending center. I say, you tell, tell me what you have. Okay. And, <clears throat> and then I can commit to a, to a building. And I think the longest I had to wait was probably four or five weeks. But after that, that's when I started calling you. Tell me what you have in your warehouse. And, and when he tell me, I went, save me that one, save me that one, and save me that one. I get you a PO over to you, and I have the machines within um, a few days. Okay. Um, I mentioned uh, the casino. That was one that we had to wait um, some weeks on because they they wanted specialized equipment, and they had to order those. But but best thing I do, I call the I call the vending center and say, "Tell me what you have." And when they tell me, I said, "Put that aside, that aside, and that aside." I get you a PO over, and they they ship it right on out. Okay, great. Great. And you have enough vendors to uh, fill some of these locations or add to their businesses? That's not been a problem either? Well, they begging. <laughs> and, and in actuality, uh, during the pandemic, we've placed three new vendors in locations. Well, that's pretty good. Um, I have one that's doing her last version, which is OJT. And I have one just started this week here. So we're, 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 we're pushing it through. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, question, uh, listening to the gentleman from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Do you encourage your vendors to uh, go out and try to recruit or, or solicit for more private locations? We do. We, we actually, Brian, we use the same message. Uh, we, we, teach the same message that the BEP consultants use when they go out to solicit. Now, once they solicit, they cannot commit to anything until we go out and do a site evaluation. But we do encourage them to go out <clears throat> and find these locations. You said you teach it. Have you got some sort of curriculum or uh, webinar well, that, or script or something? Well, we, we, we have a, a strip that we go through that I kind of teach my consultants what they need to be looking for, um, the building size, number of people, you know, hours, you know, as much information that you can get um, from that location. <clears throat> we, we teach I say teach, but it's not coming from a curriculum. But I relay to them, this is what we need to be looking for when we go do our site evaluations. 
and the blind vendor should be looking for the same thing. Um, car dealerships, you know, I have two blind vendors on uh, different parts of the state. You know, they they go out to those locations, and and I mentioned buying a vehicle. One of them bought a vehicle from one of the dealerships, and <clears throat> they they liked him so much they canceled the contract with the company that they had. And um, he, he got that facility. Um, of course, like I said, once again, we went up and did a site eval and, <laughs> and um, it was, it was a great, it was a great opportunity for him there, <clears throat> but you want to know, like I say, the hours of operations, how many people's in the building, uh, what kind of equipment they're looking for? Are there any convenience stores or coffee shops, something like that around that location? So there's there's a lot goes goes into that. But we most definitely encourage them to to go out and and seek locations. We even encourage them to uh, join civic organizations. Um, <clears throat> So they can know what's coming in, in their counties or our cities. Um, you know, buildings is being built and contracts has already been signed and we don't know anything about it. So join join your civic organizations um, so you can get that information also. That's great information. Thank you. You said uh, you sent out letters to 85 counties and 82. You got 30, 82 and you got 35 positive results. I got 35 and, and we're still uh, going to the individual county super board of supervisors meeting. Um, so listen, and in, in, in Mississippi, you know, we, some of our counties is pretty small. They have, they only have eight, 10 employees on a building, uh, which that does not justify putting a $5,000 piece of equipment in there. So some of them, if we can't turn into a vending route, we we kind of back off of them. It makes sense. Do you have a regularly scheduled program for your consultants to go out and scare up some business? Every day they work. <laughs> oh, excellent. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Hey, this is Melissa in Tennessee. I don't really have a question. I would just like to say I am just super impressed that we have a state that's out there picking up additional locations over these last couple of years rather than sitting back and waiting on everything to clear up and return to normal. Um, how do you decide if, if vendors go out and get a, a find a location that is viable? Um, do you give it to that vendor or is there a criteria you use to decide who to give that location? <clears throat> yeah, normally, uh, artists, if, if the blind vendor goes out and solicit Nissan auto parts, um, and once we go out and do a site eval and do a financial um, eval on it, that vendor would receive that facility if they went out and uh, recruited it. Now, if the SLA goes out and find a standalone <coughs> uh, facility, you know, we would be at that facility. 
out. Now, on the, the third part of that, if we, we go out and recruit a, a non-standalone, an add-on facility, say in North Mississippi, what, what, what I do, I do a financial comparison with all other vendors in North Mississippi who want to be considered for that add-on facility. And the Committee of Blind Vendors give us a recommendation on who received that facility. Um, this could be for any of you. As you're getting, it says that you're getting a lot of new micro markets. And one of the questions I have is, how how actually are you doing that to transition the vendors from just reading a micro mark, reading vending um, or cafeteria receipts to using the software involved in a micro market? Is that a, a big lift for you guys or have all your vendors already been operating telemetry and are familiar with computers and, and all that? And, and if they're not, how have you approached the transition and um, has that affected who, who gets selected or whether or not you can take places um, as to whether or not you have someone ready to roll? Well, I, I can speak from the Mississippi side, Kathy. <laughs> it's a part A and a part B, and it's a generation gap. <laughs> the, the, the older vendors are, are reluctant to learn new things. So it, it, it has been a chore for us to get the older vendors to work with whomever your micro market company is to learn the back of the house and the front of the house. They'll start out doing it. Then I can go on and check the website. They're not entering inventory, but the younger generation, they done bought into it 100%. So the key is to work with the, with folks who are interested in participating in micro markets. Yes. Get them trained up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And training, training is the key. And that's Thanks. the success of, of the micro market to know, know that part of it. Not just putting chips and drinks in the cooler and, and on the shelves. Well, good afternoon, uh, Lance Morris. And just had a comment on vendors going out and seeking locations. Tennessee's vending program has within our rules and ops package provisions for managers who go out and find new locations on their own are guaranteed that they could run those for one year. If that location uh, increases their sales too much, they may not be able to keep it in. I'm sorry, I can't remember that percentage, but regardless, if they go out and find a location, they're guaranteed to run it for a year. And the other regarding add-ons and so forth, when we have add-ons available uh, in the different areas of the state, uh, normally the Committee of Blind Vendors representatives, the consultants and the regional supervisor get together and decide depending on who's interested where that facility would go. Thank you. Yes, I don't know if this was said before, but I I remember years ago, and this is just a suggestion for everybody, um, I actually teamed up with a Coke representative, uh, salesperson, and we actually went out 
um, for about a month together and actually picked up, um, I think, about 35 different sites that the TBE program um, backed. And we went in as partners to get these locations. And it worked out great. And um, there was several blind vendors, numerous blind vendors, that um, got the repercussions of all that. So that's always an option. All right. Um, I, I do I, I do have one question uh, for the gentleman who was talking about um, having something scripted for folks uh, for your folks who would go out and look at these facilities. Uh, do you have something down on paper that you you would uh, show folks? Because I would love to see some of the ideas that you're sharing with them to have them ask the right questions. I'm, I'm right. thinking to myself in here in Minnesota. Uh, there's a few locations I want to go put on some doors on, and I, I want to make sure that um, I have the right script in my hand when I start asking questions that I, I cover all the pieces. So I, I would love to see if you've got something in writing. I, I would love to see that. Okay. What I can do, Scott, I can send it over to artists, and, and she can get it to whomever. That would be incredible. Thank you much for sharing oh, that. That's definitely. Yes, if, if any of if any of the presenters want to uh, send me info to share, please do. If um, uh, and we put some of it in the vendor scope as, uh, as well for uh, members. So uh, please do share. Artist Kim has her hand up. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm Kim Venable. I'm the current treasurer for RSVA. I'm in Louisiana and I want to commend and thank you guys in Nevada, Arizona, and Mississippi for actually doing your job well. Well done. Most SLAs just sit on their hands. They don't look for new locations. Looking for new locations means more work for them. More money for the vendors and they, they don't want that. Um, if it wouldn't have been for RSVA and the blind vendors, Randolph Shepard would, would not be in military bases at this point. The first one was Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. And that was to credit, credit goes to RSVA and the blind vendors for getting that ball rolling. Thank you guys for doing a good job. Artists, I would just like to ask that the information that uh, I believe it's William Merchant from Mississippi, the script, if you would also add me to the list to receive that. Okay. <clears throat> um, so any of the other panel members after hearing the other ones, do you have anything else to add? We're uh, running early, so you got plenty of time to share. I, I know one of the, uh, when William kind of mentioned the, uh, uh, about the, if a vendor finds a location, it goes up for bid to everyone. So I'd like to know what kind of motivation do you give your vendors to go out and look if they don't think that they're going to be able to receive the uh, location that they found? Okay. Now, I said if SLA uh, go out and find a standalone facility, it goes out for bid. Um, if, and if we find an add-on location, what we do... <coughs> just say in North Mississippi, we have an add-on facility. What we do, I do a financial analysis of all of the vendors in that area who want to be considered for the facility and the committee of blind vendors recommend a vendor. 
um, according to those stats. Now, if a vendor goes out and find an add-on location, yes, that will be their location. But as in Tennessee, we do not have a one-year rule, so that's their location until they give it up. Okay, well, that, that makes more sense because <laughs> it, it takes a lot of time to go out and do that, and then oh, there's yeah. no incentive. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, hey, William. Um, so if you have a vendor, I think the way that we do it is that if a vendor goes out and they find a a government operation because that's covered by our mini Randolph Shepard Act, um, then that has to go through either the satellite official process or a bidding process, but they wouldn't automatically get it. But if it was private industry, they get it right yes. off the bat because they found it. Correct. Okay, so if it's if it's a government organization, then you follow the traditional. That is methods. correct. Okay, mm-hmm. just want to check. Thanks. Yeah, I just would like to uh, again compliment. This is Dan Sipple, past president of RSVA. Compliment our, our three guests here today, our speakers, is for outstanding job and commitment they have to our program and to the blind vendors and blindness community as a whole. And I just like to hitchhike on the suggestion um, about partnering with your uh, Coke or Pepsi reps. Um, I personally have ventured in, in very good and there's a lot of other people around the country and just to add on to that is pepsi coke and american bottling all have vending machines freestanding all around most every community that they do a full service on and that's all they have is just their soda machine and if you develop a relationship with your pepsi coke or american bottling rep they will um offer them to you, but you have to basically bring your awareness to them. And all you do is put an um, a ambient snack machine alongside of that. Um, you know, in, but you may be committed to, if it's, if it's a Pepsi rep, you may be committed just to having a Pepsi, not having a Pepsi and a Coke American or whatever, or, a, or a Coke or whatever. You're, you're committed to that particular, and they'll usually turn over that machine to your management as well. So you, you venture into profits from that uh, soda machine. And I've had tremendous success with that. And there's been occasions where, um, you know, I mean, we all know the SLAs have um, budget processes and sometimes that comes to certain times of the year is budget crunches and whatever else that plays. So there's times of year you have to um, be willing to purchase your own equipment as a blind vendor, uh, ambient snack machine to, uh, to put alongside that um, particular uh, branded uh, soda machine. But uh, it, it pays off in the long run. And eventually, you know, um, as the SLAs, if the budget once it allows for it in a year or whatever, too, uh, they can, you can turn back over to the program. And, and usually it works all best as if you're, you're out on your vending route and you're, or you're going to your location and you're driving by the place anyway. And uh, it just works all so well. You can take five minutes, ten minutes and fill the machines and, you know, collect a few hundred bucks every week from it. But I just thought I'd hitchhike on that, that this is, it's tremendous success for myself and for many, many others around the country by partnering with um, your branded uh, soda beverage companies because they all have full service routes. So thank, thank you guys. You really, you know, if every state in the union uh, was as committed and dedicated to you guys, we would not have a problem with the pandemic. Right, exactly. Thank you. 
Exactly. I'll, I'll dovetail on that too to the all three of you on the panel. I'm personally inspired. I, I'm inspired to reach out beyond the borders that I have and um, do some good for either myself or other vendors in our program. It, 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 we're, we're only as good as each one of us. So if we as a group can lift each other up, that is so important. So I, I wanted to share that as well. Thank you. Well, I think one of the benefits of like the Sagebrush Conference is where we can share information from state to state and you can learn so much more by networking with others. Obviously, we miss the in-person network when we can network during dinner or whatever, but, you know, this is the next best thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity to, to share our story. Thanks for taking all my questions. <laughs> oh, um, we have time, so that's great. So, to, um, following up on what William said about the younger vendors having interest in no problem with the telemetry, learning that, being excited about it. Um, part of the resetting is is doing recruiting so that you can accommodate those opportunities that come along. So do any of you have um, your favorite tips to share about how you recruit new vendors and how you utilize your um, support groups or your vendors to um, recruit along with you? to get new vendors to come into the program? Well, like I, I stated earlier that actually right now in the pandemic, we've had five trainees and three of them is in facilities now. One is on her last stage of training and one just began this week. But <clears throat> I'm housed here at the Eddie McBride, our Eddie McBride Rehab Center. So I have the opportunity to see all of the clients that's come into the center and speak to them about the program. Um, you know, our selection process is just like everybody else's selection process. Um, but we're, you know, we we agent program just like most other states program are aging. And we wanted to recruit more younger vendors uh, to come into the program. Um, so once again, we're, we're, we're not afraid to go out and speak to anybody. And I tell the blind vendors, hey, if you have a friend or know a friend of a friend, tell them about Randolph Shepard. You know, that's the only way we can grow is, is we spread the word. You know, when you go to church, tell people what you do for a living. And, um, you know, because I know Mississippi have a pretty large blind population, but I would say probably less than 25% of that population know about our program. So it's good for us to be here at the rehab center. And when the clients come in, they already refer to the center. So the director of the center always give us opportunity to speak to the new clients. I'd just like to say congratulations uh, to the state of Mississippi. Uh, I think it's really, really nice and the success that you all have made and continue to make. Again, I take my, my hat out to you all. Congratulations. Thanks, Gavin. I just wanted to ask kind of a follow-up question to um, uh, the, the seeking out new facilities. Um, and if I missed 
if this has already been addressed, I apologize. I had to step away from the phone for a few. But um, I, I was wondering if you have any um, tips or um, advice for evaluating potential um, add-on facilities um, and maybe uh, a method uh, or <clears throat> best practices type on um, approaching uh, a potential um add-on, um, you know, with information about the program and, and, and you know, a potential collaboration or, or whatever. Um, I mean, because some of us are not, <laughs> I'm great with selling out of the machines, but not so much on the, the interpersonal relation. Uh, I'm not a salesperson, in other words. So uh, just if there's uh, um, tips or suggestions, right. that, that would be great. I'm going to get that information to artists, and she's going to get it out to everybody. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. This is uh, Dan Sipple again. I would just, uh, that was Linda Allison, I believe, that spoke last and said she's not a salesperson. Just as a side note, she has her, uh, her location in a nuclear power plant, so she has a glowing personality. <laughs> and really what she can do best do is get involved in the, as mentioned earlier, civic organizations. You know, I belong to the Rotary Club and Kiwanis and uh, Lions and stuff like that in Shriner. And you develop tremendous contacts there. And uh, with Linda's glowing personality, uh, she doesn't have to be a salesperson. Uh, they will come to her and offer and ask for their, her help. It, it, and so Thank many, you, Linda. In so many ways, when Linda walks into the room, she lights it up. <laughs> in so many ways. Well, thank you for the glowing recommendation, and I like the idea that I might be bright after all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, our next presentation is from Vespero. And they're one of our exhibitors this year, and we really appreciate them joining us. And this is Joe McDaniel. Yeah. And I'm going to turn it over to him, and then he can introduce his uh, partner in crime. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, let me show myself here. How's it going? I'm Joe McDaniel from Vispero. Thanks for letting us be here today. Uh, and I haven't, gosh, I haven't been to a sagebrush um, vendors uh, event in, I want to say, 10 years, seven or eight or nine years. It's been a while. I'm super excited to be here. We're glad to have you back. Thanks for coming. So how's the conference been going so far? Uh, I'm just curious. Uh, well, I, I, I can only speak to it from my side, but uh, uh, it's been very good. And as you heard, we're starting to get a little silly today. So forgive us for that. It's uh, uh, We just have such joy to be with each other. And we wish we could be together in person in Las no. Vegas. It's nice and warm. And I haven't hit Kathy up yet for a weather report, but that's coming too. But uh, no, it's been a great conference. And we are so tickled to have you here. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, first of all, thank you again. My name is Joe McDaniel, and I'm joined with Ron Miller. I am the Western Regional Sales Director for, for Vespero. I started with the company 12 years ago when it was just Freedom Scientific, and I handle the West. I handle, I, I manage our distributors. I quarterback any um, trade shows or any kind of uh, troubleshooting activities I might do in the 10 states in the West. And since I speak Spanish, they let me go to Puerto Rico. And I don't know if you all know that, that the blind community owns the national lottery in Spain. No. So it's called ONCE, 
which means um, 11 in Spanish, but it's an acronym which stands for Organización Nacional de los Ciegos de España, the organization for blind uh, people in Spain. So I know this is kind of crazy, but in the 1930s, after the Spanish Civil War, the government gave the national lottery, like the lotto, you know, to the blind community. And so um, I happened to have the opportunity to live in Spain for three years after I graduated from college to learn Spanish. And I noticed that all the, the lottery vendors in the street were blind. And that's all I kind of understood. Then I kind of knew that the, the blind community ran the national lottery. And then when I came to work for Freedom Scientific, that's when I realized that, oh yeah, if you're born blind in Spain, you were born in the right country because they educate you, they give you a job, they give you all the technology. And every three years, there's a trade show in Madrid, which I get invited to. And I'll be going in April. Um, the last two were canceled due to COVID, um, but it'll be like my fifth time to go there and um, and work a trade show in Madrid that is uh, really exciting. So um, that's a little bit too much about myself. <laughs> um, Hi, my name is Ron Miller, and I am the uh, blindness technology uh, product specialist. And uh, I've worked with Vispero for Oh, for 21 years, it'll be 22 years in May, wearing several different hats. Uh, I'm a, a former blind kid who's mostly grown out of it. And um, I live in Florida yeah, with my wife and three dogs and a little boy. How about that? Do you want anything more specific than that? No, that's good, Ron. Thank you. You got it. Um, and, and I'm still showing the screen that shows my contact information and Ron's. But below it, I just wanted to point out it shows our brands. And a lot of you might not know Vispero. You might know us as VA, um, VFO or or Freedom Scientific. Uh, uh, we merged with a couple of companies. So um, we're called Vispero, which is Latin for to see hope. And we are a, we are a um, mixture of several companies which merged over the last seven or eight years. Uh, the first one, Freedom Scientific, that's where I came from. A lot of you know our software, JAWS, and Fusion and uh, Open Book and, and things like that in our hardware products um, from the Ruby to the Topaz. Well, we also merged with uh, Enhanced Vision. Um, they have a lot of great, um, they're part of our family that we are, we are Enhanced Vision too. And um, they've got some great uh, low vision products uh, from the DaVinci to the Pebble to the Amigo, some really, really amazing products. Um, also in our brands listed there is Optelec, which is from the Netherlands. And maybe a lot of you might um, be familiar with like the Clearview Go or the Clearview C. Um, they've got some really good handhelds like the Clearview, like, like um, of all products from the Netherlands, which are made really nicely. So it's Enhanced Vision, it's Freedom Scientific, it's Optelec, and TPGI, which is our consulting arm uh, of Vespero and TPGI helps big big companies become compliant with ADA compliances and helps with their websites so people using assistive technology can ac actually access their websites and their content. Um, again, so um, it's Enhanced Vision, Freedom Scientific, Optelec, and TPGI. I'm going to start off talking about our low vision products and you've probably heard of our Ruby. Um, I think a lot of people might have heard of our Ruby. It's kind of our flagship product. We have five different versions. Um, and I'm showing up on the screen right now, the Ruby XLHD, which is a five-inch screen. Uh, it's a handheld, which is very portable. And this product is great because it, when it opens up, it kind of in, 
opens up at an incline. So when you place it flat on a table and you put documents under it, you can easily um, not have to lean over to look at it, just sit back comfortably in that chair and, and magnify and change color contrast. And it even folds up with a, with a handle so you can take it to a restaurant or to a store. And the reason I'm talking about um, the Ruby XLHD is that I wanna talk now about our new Ruby 10. Uh, we just introduced it a few weeks ago. Um, now I'm showing a picture of the Ruby 10. It's twice as big as the XLHD. It's a 10 inch screen. It's um, designed the same way where when you open it up flat on the table, it is um, at an incline, which makes it easy to view. Now I'm showing a picture right now of a close up of the screen. It's got uh, the buttons, which are tactile and brightly colored lit. Um, they're easy to use just like all the Ruby products. And um, I can't wait to show you all about it here. Now I'm showing a, a side view of the Ruby 10 when it's inclined. And, I'm, and it points out easily how the power button is really easy to touch on the side. The charging LED is easy to read. There's an audio jack. Um, so in case you're in a public place or a library and the things you're um, a little... Uh, Disclosure, um, it does speech. So if you have headsets set in, um, you can have your head, your, your um, Bluetooth head, head, um, head, headset on. Um, and there's also a USB-C port on the side here, which I'll be talking about later, how you can um, download files from your computer, or you can download files from the Ruby 10 to your computer. Right now I'm showing a picture of two different people using the Ruby 10. There's a little woman on the left and she's sitting at a table and she has it in that inclined position and she has a photograph under, under the Ruby 10. So she's comfortably sitting there viewing um, the Ruby 10 with the documents underneath the device. And then the gentleman to the right has actually pulled out the retractive arm, which also has a camera on it. And he's sitting there really uh, nicely um, just able to um, have the document just to the right side of the Ruby 10. And he'll, he's able to uh, easily peruse a, a document and uh, magnify certain areas. So again, we're showing two different ways um, how flexible and easy it is to read uh, uh, using the Ruby 10. Um, I'm showing right now two different um, views of the Ruby 10. One with the main menu for the default mode and one, one of the main menu with the advanced mode. So just so you know, there's two different ways you can use this device. If you just want to magnify, if you just want to hear speech, if you want to look at documents and, and photographs, um, the first six icons on the main menu will be enough. But, but if you're a little techier and you want to do some things like connect your computer, then we have the main menu has eight icons. I've now switched to a screen that's showing the first six. They're, they're pretty basic and easy. The first one's settings. And I think all of us from our, from our iPhones uh, know that um, you can do um, a lot of things in the settings mode. And, it's a, and, the, and, the, and the actual icon is shaped like a cog, just like on your iPhone. The next one is a graduation cap. And that's really easy to, to remember because let's say you feel smart enough to go to the next realm, the next uh, dimension, with the Ruby 10, and that just goes from the defaulted uh, main menu that has six icons to the advanced uh, mode. Um, and we represent that icon with a graduation cap. Um, the next icon to the right is the I for information. 
And, you know, that displays all the information about the device, like the version of software, your serial number, and also where you can get technical support and information. So that eye is pretty, um, that iconic eye is pretty international on, on every um, aspect. The fourth one I'm going to talk about is the Bluetooth. Um, and I think we all know that the Bluetooth icon kind of looks like a bee with uh, arms and legs sticking out. It kind of looks like the Bluetooth device. So again, uh, like I mentioned before, this, this product can um, connect via um, to Bluetooth devices. The next one, um, the next icon is a visual properties. This is a picture of a sun that has like half of it uh, grayed out and half of it bright. And this is a great place where you can go to change the visual properties and, you know, improve the image on the screen. And then lastly, we have the, uh, it's like a um, speaker with sound coming out of it, pretty international icon, um, volume and rate of speech. So there you can make it louder or softer and speed up the speech. So those are the six icons in just the default mode. I'm going to quickly touch on the other two additional icons. Um, now I'm showing two new icons. One looks like a file folder. It's called Manage Document and Image Files. This is a great document for when you when you do want to connect up uh, to your computer. This will allow you uh, to take files from your computer and load them into the Ruby 10. Or you can actually take images like uh, photographs and, and store things uh, um, on the Ruby 10 and then um, actually be able to export those to your computer. So. Um, that that document is really, really critical. Uh, that, that icon is really helpful when you want to do that, that kind of a thing. Um, again, it's a USB-C port, so it doesn't matter if you put it upside down, it's going to go in there and you'll be able to connect to your computer quickly. And the last one, the eighth little uh, icon there is Miracast. And that's exactly what it does. It casts a mirror. Um, this icon looks like a big monitor with like a, maybe the Ruby, Ruby 10 in front of it. So it's like uh, really easy to recognize. This will allow you to connect your, your Ruby 10 to, let's say, a smart TV or a bigger monitor. So whatever you're viewing on the Ruby 10 will now be displayed in a bigger, larger document. You know, Joe, I, maybe I missed it, but have you, when you were talking about the file manager and the ability to transfer files, that, that really speaks to somebody who might be on the go and going from their office to uh, wherever they're doing their business, and you can capture images while you're on site, carry those back to your computer and bring those back in. So, um, you know, if you're doing inventory, you want to capture either an image of a product packaging, uh, labeling, a barcode, and then come back to your office so you can, you know, if you're not doing inventory on site, you can bring those images back. You can say, oh, I need, I need more of these and just grab it or grab the picture of the position in the vending machine. However you're identifying these things, those images will walk away with you, walk right back to your office, and you can use that file manager to bring those images into the computer that you're using to manage other stuff. So you can look at them on the bigger monitor, you can save them for later, you can date stamp them, of course, and it gives you another way to do referencing if you want to do some visual referencing like that. Great point, Ron. Thank you for uh, pointing that out. Uh, I've moved to another screen that says magnification camera. So then again, this is somebody just viewing the Ruby 10 with documents right below it. And it's really comfortable and easy to use when it's in this inclined position. I, I did want to note that when you're in this position and you're viewing the, the document that the focus lock um, is not available during this, this time frame because you're putting the Ruby 10 on top of a document. We have other cameras on the Ruby 10 where you're in a mode where let's say you're doing hobbies 
and you're looking at rings or coins or, or you know, stamps or whatever, um, and you can have the fo- focus lock on there. So, so it's not trying to focus on your hand. It's just every time you put it in there, it's already, um, it's already clear and in focus. Now I'm showing uh, another view of the of, a, of the camera where the actual Ruby 10 is closed. It's not in the incline uh, position, and you're holding it like uh, a tablet right in front of you. This allows you to be in a restaurant, read the menu easily, uh, like in a store to look at the prices. And uh, believe it or not, um, this works really good for kind of uh, several feet away too. So if I walk into a McDonald's and I can see it's filet fish Friday, I can read the menu like in a fast food restaurant. For example, I can read a bus schedule if I'm waiting for a bus. So um, it's not going to shoot across the street or go like 15 or 20 feet, but it can do like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 feet. Um, you can see where you're going and um, kind of like, uh, I'd say, um, really, really eight to nine feet um, of uh, magnification away to see things. Here I have the full page camera. So when I mentioned before, this camera wand is in this picture now is now retracted. So it is extended out. And then I just put my document to the right side of the of the um, Ruby 10. And that way I can quickly and easily sign a document. Um, I can e- even take the screen at this point and magnify it with my fingers like your smartphone. There is a plus and minus uh, tactile buttons on the side. But if I don't want to like uh, reach over and touch the plus or minus, I can actually touch the screen and pinch it like I can my smartphone and it will magnify and uh, go to a certain area of the document. So that's a easy to use full page camera position. So um, this is the exciting thing about this product. It does the scanning and reading. So a lot of people have asked for a scanning device in a small handheld. We, we kind of did that a couple of years ago with the Optelic uh, 6. But now we have the Ruby 10, which just is a little bit bigger, still, still portable, but it gives you the uh, OCR feature. It gives you the, the ability on the go to uh, use that. So um, again, you there's a button on the left side of the Ruby 10. It's a red button. You hold that down and it snaps a picture. If I hold it down while snapping the picture for another additional second or two, it's actually going to take a picture of what, what's ever to the right of the, of the device. And it's going to OCR and read that to me. And again, you can pause that, you can read that, you can magnify that, and um, you can make it really slow speech or, or speed it up, whatever you like. And it does several languages too. We do about 24 different languages. So if you have some Turkish or Spanish or French or German, and you put the document down and you tell the Ruby 10 that you're doing German, it will speak everything in German or everything in Spanish. So the reading view is really important. So once you do scan a document, a full page, I can view that in different ways. The first one is the ticker tape. So I would just actually be seeing just the um, one line going across and it will just keep going on, um, keep repeating and repeating like a small ticker tape. And that way I can magnify that and have like the big letters going across the screen. Some people like the ticker tape. The next way you can view it is a teleprompter. And that's how you kind of think of like when you see TV, when, you know, when people get up on stage, you think they've memorized all that stuff. No, they're reading off cue cards and someone's holding in the audience. And that's what this mode does. It, it kind of just puts everything in text. It will take whatever you, whatever you scan um, and take away all the graphics and just give you text. Um, the next way you could view this is just the raw image. That would be photos, text, and your, and, and your different symbols and things like that. So 
Um, this way, you kind of want to just make sure you know the text pretty well because it's it's going to be giving you everything the the images as well as the text. And then there's a a, a viewing area called zone. So let's say you push the red button and it starts reading everything. You can actually like touch an area like a paragraph and it will go read that one. Let's say it reads all the way to the bottom and you want to go to the top of the second paragraph. You just touch the screen where that area is and it's going to read that paragraph or that zone again. Again, really, really um, convenient and really easy to use. And it has, the OCR is great. It does a really good job of doing the OCR. Uh, so a lot of people say, well, this is going to be a confusing device to use. It's really not. Um, this next screen I'm showing is called Help Text. And while you're in your Ruby 10, you can actually push any button when you're in the help text mode and it will actually tell you what it is and it will speak to you and say, this is the on off button. This is where you magnify. This is where you do the scanning. So again, it's, um, this is available by default. Um, you can go in there and just go to the main menu, go to settings and language menu. And then right there at help text, um, if you want to turn that off, but, um, it's a great benefit. And a lot of people use that for the first couple days they're using their Ruby 10. Now, the, we're really excited about this because we've added some things that a lot of the other, a lot of other devices don't have yet. And we have these are kind of patent patents we have that that make this device a lot a lot uh, special and um, feature rich of things that no nobody else has. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Edge Effect, and the icon is actually part of a character. It looks like a number or a letter. It kind of looks like an empty rainbow. So this is something we've done. What we've done here is that this helps with people that are affected by glare. So uh, somebody will be looking at, um, we've, we have two examples here. We have um, a logo and then we have some words written in Latin. And what this does is when you're in that color contrast mode, you know, sometimes um, you'll, you'll get a big blank space in the middle or it's kind of hard to read what's going on. This really helps with, with um during when you're in a high contrast looking at an image because it actually makes a square of the word so it kind of like outlines the word and if you can and if any of you are sighted enough to see the examples i have on my screen um on the left they've taken uh, a logo and they've like kind of like a block edged all the the um the outlining part of the letters um and numbers so you can actually read them um same with the smaller text of the latin on the right so again this this really gives a clear outline um, when you're in the contrast mode. Uh, and this is pretty groundbreaking because uh, no other company, no other product has this yet. It really, it really, um, it, it, it gives you an advantage because you can read the letter with, um, it makes it with real crisp edges. Um, so definitely not having it filled in with some people that have a glare issue um, really helps. And now I'm going to talk about the edge highlight. So the same icon, which is part of a character, but this one's filled in. And again, this really, really helps when you're looking at an image that might be, that might be um, really washed out because you're in a, like a black on yellow thing. And sometimes uh, contrast, and sometimes you can't read that as well, but um, the, the edge highlight, it really, it really highlights it. And, um, and it's, it really helps with the glare problem again. For people that have glare issues, which a lot of people that are using low vision devices do have, uh, this is another way to um, look at highlight uh, contrast. 
Here's another another great thing. A lot of people have color blindness. Uh, in fact, um, I have right now on the screen three pictures of a tree. The first one, um, what someone would see of this tree, it's a liquid amber. It's a red, bright, brilliant fall color. And from this picture, that's, this is what somebody who has no color blindness problem at all would see. Um, the one in the middle is a typical person that has deuteropia, which is one of the most common color blindnesses, which confuses the greens, reds, and yellows. This is what they would see. So we're we're basically looking at like a washed out picture of that same tree. Well, uh, what you do is um, there are three different kinds of color blindness, and you go in, and whether it's deuteropia or protonopia or tritonopia. Um, you'll go into the Ruby 10 and you kind of take a test and it says, do you see this color? Fill this in. And it kind of, and it adjusts it for your color blindness. So the last picture I have shows the corrected view. It's not as bright and brilliant as the first one with a person that doesn't have color blindness, but it's definitely red coral colored. So again, this is, this is kind of a breaking edge technology that, um, that we've come up with that no one else has. And um, it's just a wonderful thing to have in a device like this in a, in a small portable. Okay, now I've just changed the screen and now we're looking at something we call contrast and dynamic adaptive contrast. So sometimes again, when you're using a contrast, uh, 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 um, contrast uh, color mode, um, you lose a lot. This is where that, where that image really, you see like a big, round circle in the middle that's like washing everything out. Um, this is this is a special, this has a special high contrast that's written into the software code that, that makes it very easy for somebody to see that has low vision. So um, we've got some examples here where it shows um, where it's not applied. It's kind of washed out. We've got, again, the logo and then some, some text there. Um, but then when the enhanced color is on there, um, it's a little easier to use and see, but then again, there's people with glare issues. And again, so this last one shows the dynamic contrast. And again, it's showing black on white and it shows how it again outlines the letters and it's a lot easier to use. It's kind of hard to show on a Zoom meeting, um, but this is something you really need to see in person. It's, it's pretty amazing. Again, um, the connect um, it connects to audio jacks. So again, you can be in a, you can be in a really crowded environment and just listening to the scan and read feature without bothering anyone around you. Um, it has the USB-C cable um, connections. So um, again, the Ruby, the Ruby 10 can connect to your computer. Um, this is how you charge the device. Um, again, connects to computer. Um, and also for, um, for the Miracast, you can connect um, to the Miracast and um, great. Whatever you're viewing on, on your Ruby 10 is now on a big screen like a smart TV and and of course the Bluetooth wireless connection which and the is Miracast a, is also wireless you might want to add that if you've got a, a TV a lot of the new TVs will do it right. um, iPhone will not the iOS products won't but your TVs a lot of the smart monitors I use Miracast all the time here at home because I'm not having to you know, we're talking about HDMI cables and you're thinking I don't want to put a cable across my, my living room or office or whatever Miracast and it's spelled Mira like Mira, <laughs> Miracast. Like, look, um, it will let you actually wirelessly connect to that monitor or that smart TV. Thanks, Ron. Uh, so 
that was the Ruby 10. And before I, I move on to one, one other thing, I just want to tell you that we've just recently come out with a new uh, segment of, of magnifiers, and we call them foldable and portable magnifiers. And since we are Enhanced Vision and Freedom Scientific and Optelec, we have come out with, with a version for each. So the, um, the Merlin Mini is a foldable device. This is a, this is a lot bigger, the 15 and 17 inch screen, bigger than the Ruby 10, but it's foldable and, and you can take it on the go. And I know a lot of the people maybe listening to this might be in the scenario where they're, where they're going into where they're working and then they're coming out and they need information. Um, the next one is the Topaz Ultra. That's again, it's like our Topaz, but we've made it um, a foldable, portable one. These weigh about what a laptop weighed 10 years ago. They're about nine and a half pounds. Um, and then a close, the clear, uh, uh, the clear view go from Optelec. Um, again, they're all three very similar, uh, but they seem to look more like the, their, their brand. Like the Merlin mini does look like it's an enhanced vision product. The Topaz ultra looks like it came from freedom scientific and the clear view go definitely looks like an Optelec product. But I just wanted, um, you guys to know that we have a whole new segment, um, of new devices and, um, this is what they are. With, uh, now I'd like Ron to start talking about uh, his product. Ron, I brought on the first screen. Super. Okay. So we're going to talk about, did, I, I know I wasn't around a lot, Joe, um, at, the, at the beginning trying to get into the room here. And did, did we find out, do we have any Braille readers that are with us or is it, are we mostly low vision folks or you know, do you know? Does anyone want to chime in? If you're a Braille reader, could you raise your hand? There you go. Just, yeah, for a quick, just so I know. I don't think I see anyone raising no? their hand. Okay. I don't see any. <laughs> so perhaps nobody. We may not have any Braille readers in the audience, Joe. Oh, we have one. <laughs> okay. Yay. okay. Well, I just I just want to be sure. Um, you know, I, I want to cover. Okay, good. Okay, we want to cover topics that are you know that are of interest. So we'll do this, and, and there's just one of us here, two counting me, <laughs> a couple of Braillesters. So I yeah, I'm a Braille reader too. So here we go. Okay, at least three of us. There we go. <laughs> We have a we have a triumvirate of braille readers. Post is a braille reader too. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah, I just want to be sure. Um, so let's talk a minute about, or maybe two or three, about our, our braille products. And uh, because you know our, our focus is on people that are that are doing businesses, entrepreneurial things. You're you're out and about. You're moving. You're you're carrying away. Braille lends itself. If you're a braille reader, can lend itself so well to portable business, to business on the go. Um, the, the focus Braille displays, which we're talking about, and just so you know, there's an image of the three focus fifth generation Braille displays, a uh, 14 cell, a 40 cell, and an 80 cell version. There's three in the family. They all have the same features and the same basic control layout, but they are able, like, um, like now everybody else's uh, Braille displays, they can connect to up to five Bluetooth devices at once and one USB device. And because the emphasis is... Is, is business on the go and doing stuff on the go. I've subtitled this flexibility in connectivity leads to ability and portability. Um, you probably won't remember that, but I, I just liked it to, to, uh, to point out the fact that we are talking about being highly portable, being highly connectable and allowing you to be very able. So in our next slide, we have just a top view of the focus 40 blue. Since I can't put it into your hands for those who can see the slides, we just we do a quick um, you know a quick overview of that, um, and then we have uh, 
Uh, next slide is a front and side view, and you're seeing on the left the uh, the power um, the power switch, the USB port on the top where all the controls, the Braille keyboard, uh, those kinds of things. Our next slide is just a picture, a top view of the Focus 14 view, Focus 14 <laughs> Braille display view. And uh, again, for those of you who can see it, you'll notice the controls are very, very similar. We've worked very hard to make these controls comfortable to use. Um, they're quiet. I'm using mine here in the background as I'm reading these notes. You don't hear a lot of key clacking and things going on. Um, you'll, you'll hear the dogs barking in the background before you'll hear my keyboard, uh, even if they're two rooms away. So it's pretty quiet. Uh, but I did want you to have the opportunity to look. And again, the next slide's a front and side view of the Focus 14 Blue, just like we showed you that for the uh, the Focus 40. So on our next slide, we say introducing the fifth generation Focus Braille uh, display. Um, it is the, the fifth of these, these. This whole product line started way back in 2002. So we're up to uh, generation number five. Okay. Um, it is, again, the... Uh, Kind of the repeat of my title there. And in, in the business world where you want to carry stuff, you hear about tough books, the laptops that are very rugged, 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 everything's rugged. This is still the most rugged portable Braille display on the market today. Um, it's, it's housed in aluminum and steel. The housing is not plastic. We've worked very hard. We went at the education market because the kiddos are dropping these into backpacks and dropping them in general sometimes. <laughs> so we, we housed them in metal. We put uh, bumpers at each end to absorb the impact. If you hold it on its end and drop it into the backpack. Now, as an adult, I'm sure we would ease this $3,000 device down, but a little child or a 12-year-old Ron Miller, even in the day, would unzip that backpack, kind of poke that end in and then let it go. And it, of course, comes down on that backpack bottom, which is just fabric, and it hits the tile floor, the concrete floor. <clears throat> Mark, can't you drop it. this thing out of an Apache uh, helicopter? Helicopter? <laughs> is that like uh, military grade? Something like that? It is, it is drop tested to mil standard 810G. That's mil standard 810 Golf. And uh, not across the board. There are things that you don't want to do with it, um, but it is, it's drop tested to that so you, it can be dropped onto a surface from a, um, a reasonable height. We, we, we test them to 30 inches, I think. And again, don't do this a thousand times, but if if you're walking along, especially if it's on its carrying case, it slips off your shoulder, you drop it onto a desk accidentally or something, it it does do a good job. It does hold up. It is very rugged. So it can travel with you. It does have a case. I know the question comes. It does have a case that you can use it with it slung around your neck or over your shoulder and keep brailing away. Um, there's 40, 14, or 80 cells. I'm on the, uh, uh, the feature slide. Uh, Joe, I'm sorry. Yep, I'm there. Slide 28. Okay. So... Um, it does have either 14, 40, or 80 cells. Um, we've put a menu button in between dots one and four, which lets you get into all the settings you want to do. It has a Perkins-style keyboard. Our Braille display is the same one we've offered for the last couple of generations. It's seamless. There's no cell caps. You don't have that tile roof feeling. And then the front panel controls are convenient for both panning through your document or moving up and down by line. Like our other products, we've incorporated a USB-C cable, the Type-C cable, so you can't put it in backwards. People did have a tendency to try and force them in. Um, if a little bit of pressure doesn't work, a lot of pressure might. Well, the, 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 uh, the cables don't like that, and the connector on the display doesn't like that. So with a USB-C cable, and if you're used to putting in your lightning cable, for example, into your iPhone, 
it's that same effect. You can there's you can't put it in backwards. Okay, there's you can you can take either orientation, and as I mentioned, it does come with a rugged use-in case, and that is free. Um, the next slide talks about the connectivity of the device. Remember, connectivity leads to that flexibility we talked about. It will connect up to five Bluetooth devices simultaneously, and you can switch back and forth between them. The most I've ever used is three, just because my, my geek isn't big enough, I guess. Uh, a couple of computers and my iPhone. And it's nice because you can switch between them on the fly with a single keystroke. You don't have to go into any kind of a connections menu or anything like that. So, for example, if I'm working like I am here, um, I actually... I, I was on a Zoom meeting um, yeah, before I came and joined you guys on my personal computer. And then I, I set up for this Zoom meeting and finally got here. So both computers are still up. The other session is, is down, but my recording is up. And it's also paired, you know, it can be paired with my phone. So if I were to get a text, even as we're talking or reading, um, I can flip over, look at the text. Uh, the computers don't know, don't care. You know, as, as long as there's active connections, I can move in between all of them. So it's it's very easy to do that. The nice thing about this, and let's bring this back into the context, I hope, of, of traveling and of working, is if you're carrying a tablet computer, uh, like the Surface Pro that, that a lot of people have, um, uh, if you're using an iOS device, an iPad, an iPod Touch, an iPhone, uh, any of the uh, Android devices, if you're an Android user, um, but I say especially with, with a Windows PC, you can leave, if the device is made to do it, you can leave it in your backpack or your messenger bag or whatever and still stay connected to it. So, uh, you know, I talked about this using the Ruby, but I know for, for me, if I was doing this, if I was doing inventory, I had my inventory spreadsheet open, um, you know, I could, if I'm doing machines and I'm filling machines, I could even leave my computer in the vehicle walk out with my braille display and if i'm 20 to 30 feet away i've still got contact i can update stuff i can change my spreadsheet i can do all that sort of stuff so we talk about work on the go is our next slide and you can use things like OneDrive, uh, uh dropbox icloud any of the the cloud-based uh, uh services to to keep your files synced between say the computer in the office and the portable that you're carrying um, again, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a, a Windows tablet because you don't really care about the keyboard. You've got the Braille keyboard and everything you want to do on your computer, you can do from that Braille keyboard. Um, the nice thing uh, is depending on the applications you're using and depending on the operating system that you're using, as you're editing documents or spreadsheets or whatever, uh, and you're doing your on-the-go edits and you're keeping them synced with a cloud service, like, like I said, like OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever, um, it is very, very uh, possible to maintain uh, all of the, the formatting and the document enhancements that you might have. Um, some note takers, some of the devices, when you want to save uh, a file, it says, nope, you can only do RTF, you can only do text format, you can do whatever. Um, if you're using Office 365, for example, in a Windows-based tablet or a laptop, you don't have any of that issue. Your stuff is saved. It's synced with your other computers. It's done on the go. So I, I bring that up only simply because it is it is so great to be able to have your files stay synced, whether you're on the road or you're back at the office. Mail on the go, the same kind of thing. Um, using your Braille display, you've got you've got Braille, and I'm 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 pushing Braille if you're a Brailleister because you don't have to have speech in your ear. Now, if you need it, you got it. You know, screen magnification works for you. That's good. But if you're a Braille reader. The nice thing is your ears stay out in the real world, whether you're talking to 
Uh, if you're doing a cafeteria or some kind of a stand, you can talk to employees, you can talk to customers. If you just need to hear around you and know what's going on, let your fingers do the reading. Just like a sighted person would look at the screen. The rest of your sensors are still out there in the real world. They have mobile versions of Microsoft Outlook and other email applications. So you can manage all of your email on the go. Um, several Windows mail clients. We use Outlook at work. I use that at home. We have Office 365, but there's others as well. And they all give you good Braille output. Uh, you can mute speech, still do your Braille, still read your email, still run everything. It works very well. Um, my note here says Outlook for iOS is, uh, also provides excellent Braille support, which it does. And the uh, iOS native mail client, I've used them both. They both work really well. Um, looking at Windows tablets, Focus Blue and the Pearl cameras, my next slide. Just to briefly talk about that, Windows tablets, I think we've kind of worked that point. You know, you're using Windows, you're using Office 365. It is the most widely used operating system in corporate and government settings, uh, also in schools, of course. And it's geared to produce documents, emails, presentations, like, like the PowerPoint we're doing now, those kind of things. Um, and it, if you're using Office on your mobile device that's going with you, you get full file support for documents, for spreadsheets, for PowerPoint presentations. If you add the Pearl camera, I wish I could put one in your hand so you can all see it. It folds up really small. It does come with a padded carry case, which I don't use. I just throw it in my backpack. I've got one I've carried for years, and it just keeps on rolling. But the nice thing about a Windows tablet or laptop, your Braille display, and a Pearl camera is if you encounter... Uh, stuff in paper, it lets you break the paper barrier. You can uh, you can open up uh, your, your Pearl camera, unfold it, grab whatever piece of material you have to read, and let it perform optical character recognition and let you read uh, the, you know, the, the thing that you've come across, the, the print that you've come across. Okay. Um, our next slide is advantages of JAWS. Um, if you are a JAWS user, you know this stuff. It's the support is very rich. It's very robust Braille support um, across a very huge cross-section of Windows-based applications. Um, JAWS provides descriptions of visual components such as charts, slides. You can use uh, Picture Smart if you've got to look at an image of something. Somebody sends you an image. If you are grabbing a product image, you want to read what's on the box, it'll let you do that using Picture Smart. It'll, it'll actually OCR the text in the image. If you're composing a lot of documents, a lot of mailers, a lot of things you're going to put out in front of people and you want to do really professional um, presentations and products, you've got tools like Text Analyzer, which helps you be sure there's no problems in your document, uh, parentheses, unclosed, uh, sentence, uh, space run-ons, inverted capitals, where you are typing really fast. And for example, if I'm writing Ron, I will sometimes write small r, capital O, because my thumb arrived on the shift key after my finger one for the O. Text analyzer looks at this stuff. If you've started a, a quotation mark and don't put a closing quote, if you've got font changes that are unexpected because you're copying and pasting from the web or other sources, it'll help you catch that stuff. Uh, convenient OCR, we've talked about doing, I didn't name it, but it's the ability to do OCR using the Pearl camera or a scanner uh, and, and going from hard copy to electronic uh, text. JAWS is very highly customizable. You can script it to accommodate applications you might be using. I know I've, I've talked in the past with folks who needed help getting their point of sale um, software up and running. Um, sometimes if, if it's Windows-based, Windows there's stuff that can be done. And finally, flexible web, 
which I haven't talked about a lot. I need to do a, another webinar on Flexible Web sometime because it lets you actually filter on unwanted stuff out of web content. If there's a web page you go to all the time and you're tired of reading all the advertisements and everything, you can filter all that out. Um, next slide is about advantages of iOS on the go. And it's... Um, it's less complex than Windows. I think a lot of us are familiar with it. Similar look and feel across devices. And you can use it with a, a large, large scope of different devices. And there's a large cross-section of apps available in it. Again, uh, you can use it with your, with your Braille display. You can drive your iOS device with it without a lot of problems. There's Our next slide is very powerful travel tools you can use with it. Um, I know a lot of us are using our iPhones, iPads, and there's great support in whether it's Apple Maps and a lot of the other apps for Braille support. If you're walking, you might, might want to use speech. If you're driving, you can become the navigator in the vehicle as your driver's taking you along. I do this, my wife and I do it because she can hear the spoken directions, but I can read the turn by turn. I can give her the distance to the next maneuver. There's many different things like that that are available for you. Okay. Joe, let me turn it back to you. Um, yeah, I think um, we're almost out of time. We're almost yeah. out of time now. Exactly. Are, are there any questions? Does anyone have any questions about either the, either our company, our low vision products, or the, uh, or our software Jaws, or Anything the Braille displays? <laughs> Hi there. Welcome. Hello. Hi, aloha. Um, aloha, aloha. All these years, I have been, I have encountered problems reading my uh, scanning by. Norton. I don't okay. know how to get around that. I mean, okay, you scan what happened. Unless you can read what the results are, it's useless. That's right. Now, are you a JAWS user? Uh, since uh, I can remember. Okay. So let me ask you, our, our, our contact information is available. Can I ask you to drop me an email so I can take you uh, through convenient OCR so we can talk about using scanned images better? Okay. Sure. Yeah, send me an email. That would be great because I'm happy to talk to you about that, okay? Uh, your email address? Yeah. The uh, email address is on the um, program. Uh, I think the it's program. in the program, right? Okay, got it. Yep. All right. Mahalo. Yeah. I hope to hear from you. And Mahalo. if you can't find it, if you can't find it, just let me know, Ronald, and I'll send it to you. Yes. Uh, I would like to know the cost of the Ruby 5 and the Ruby 10. Right. So the Ruby XLHD is um, uh, about $900. And the Ruby 10, um, let me see, I'm going to go to our website right now. It was just released. Uh, it comes in two versions, by the way. It comes with or without speech. And um, I'm going to give you that pricing right with here. With speech. Yeah, I'm going to give it to you with speech. Okay. And the Ruby 10. And I'm just going to, my, to the Freedom Scientific website. Uh, freedomscientific.com and going to the Ruby 10 and there's two ways you can get it with and without speech and it looks like the Ruby 10 for the is with with speech is 1745 $1,745 um, okay. for those of you that don't want it with speech it's 1445 but that's 17 so thank you very much uh, thank well, you thank, <clears throat> thank you guys very much for coming and sharing your products and services and i'm sure you'll get lots of uh, follow-up uh, 
calls and emails because it's really hard to share. Yes, and, it's hard uh, to share on, on a Zoom. You know, a presentation, yeah. everything, yeah. and, you know, answer everybody's questions. We're Thank so you so much for having us. With you. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Sure. You guys have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, next, we have a presentation from Southern Teaming Partners, and that's with Walt Berry and maybe Connor Lyles. I'm not sure if both will be on or just one. Um, well, and um, I know probably a lot of the participants uh, were on earlier when I spoke and gave the overview of, of, of Southern. Um, I'll do a real quick one for those who weren't on. Uh, and that Southern uh, Food Service Management is a, a, a company uh, that is a contract management company, and we've been in business uh, really since the 19-teens, over 100 years. And uh, we formed a separate uh, spinoff of, from our parent company in 1952. So we have been strictly a contract management company. Uh, food service provider uh, since 1952, and uh, we began as a government contractor, so we have been doing government contracting since the 1940s, uh, and the, you know, since then we have branched off into many other areas, uh, including private industry, business dining, uh, industrial dining, uh schools, retirement homes, and uh, stadiums and other in entertainment venues. So uh, we have a breadth of experience and uh, knowledge, and we like to uh, bring that to the table. Um, one of the things, just coming off of the, you know, the technology piece that we just heard about, um, I thought it'd be, as, as I was listening, I thought it'd be good to talk about maybe some of the uh, advances in technology in the, the cafe space that uh, really has just starting to boom, uh, primarily due to the labor market and not being able to find enough people to work. And um, one of the things that we're moving rapidly towards, and we have uh, many locations right now that are already doing this, and that is uh, going to completely cashierless checkout. And uh, we have uh, developed a system that where by you can order uh, online or at an ordering kiosk, pay, and then go in and get your food with a ticket. And where So the system will print out a ticket and uh, you can take that in and, and then use that to get your food. So, uh, and then there, the other methodology is just like a standard cashier uh, station but instead of having people there checking you out, you basically, the customers check themselves out. Um, but we're, we're finding the other methodology uh, where you pay in advance for what you want and then get your items is uh, a lot better as far as 
accounting for all your items. In other words, you don't have people that forget to scan something, you know, or uh, don't scan at all, just walk by or act like they're scanning or the various kinds of things that this that can happen. Um, with, with this new method we're using, you don't have to uh, worry about that. Basically, they don't get their food unless they've paid already. So it's basically moving the checkout to the front of the of the line instead of the back of the line. Um, another technology that is really um, very neat that um, is new and we're experimenting with this. We haven't rolled it out anywhere as of yet, uh, but that is a system called MASHGEN and it essentially is uh, akin to facial recognition for food items. Uh, it, essentially, it is a scanning system, and you put your tray, you, uh, you slide your tray under the tray rail with all your food on it, your drink and your dessert and your all that, and it has been programmed to recognize what each item is, and it rings it up all at once. So essentially, it, you slide it on there, and boom, it got it has your order rung up right then and there, and it's all based on uh, photo recognition of different items. And it's a really, really slick program. And um, I think we're going to be rolling it out here in some select locations before too long. And uh, but that's. Essentially, some of the things that just by necessity are being uh, vaulted into the forefront. These things were probably coming down the line anyway, um, but because, you know, you cannot fully staff a location nowadays, um, it seems like uh, we're having to come up with ways to run these locations with less and less people. So that's just some technology that we're using to to do that. And I uh, thought it'd be a good time to throw that out. If anybody's interested in learning more about it, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to share uh, what information I have on it. Um, now, moving on to, I believe the, the main topic I was uh, slated to speak on were teaming arrangements and uh, teaming agreements. And that uh, subject has uh, uh, been around for a long time, obviously. And uh, I'd like to give my advice and my two cents on what a good teaming agreement is um, and how we structure our teaming agreements. Uh, and I know there's been guidance on teaming arrangements issued uh, by uh, the, the RSA in this past year. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But the essentially, the teaming agreement needs to reflect the, uh, the dynamics of, of the teaming arrangement. And the main dynamic is that the licensed blind manager is in control and is is the boss, so to speak. Um, 
you know, the whole team agreement needs to be based on that single premise. Um, and so as far as the particulars of that drilling down into the details, uh, the, the, the language of the agreement needs to reflect that uh, they have the blind manager has full access to reporting information uh, and can direct the teaming partner uh, and is has uh, control of the contact with the client, the federal government uh, agency or client who is the um, grantor agency. Um, and, you know, I have seen uh, or heard of contracts uh, that preclude the blind manager from, from having that contact and you know, preclude them from having any reports or control. And um, those are the kind of things you want to not agree to. Uh, as a blind manager, you want to be sure your teaming agreement is written such that you have full control of the location. Um, and, you know, here again, reporting information is critical. Uh, if you have to, if you have a need to replace your teaming partner, you need to have all the information you know, available to you to be able to share with your new teaming partner to um, make sure that they have a chance to succeed and don't have to start over. And I know we have come into situations where we're replacing a teaming partner and there was no information shared with the licensed blind manager. So uh, that put us at a you know, disadvantage, I guess, if you will, um, as far as bidding the job or uh, just operating the job. So the, the, the agreement should always reflect the fact that you have to have uh, full control of the information. Uh, and, you know, basically that's our, our agreements, Southern Teaming Partners agreements are written that you will provide any information that, that you are um, requesting in regards to the operation. Uh, so the, another key point is that the term of the agreement um, should never be an evergreen agreement that basically says as long as the SLA has the contract that such and such is the teaming partner. Um, and I know that's pretty much widely accepted now that that's no longer an acceptable, that's not an acceptable arrangement. Um, but there's still some of those agreements out there. We don't have any, uh, when those, our agreements from day one, we've never had that. Ours typically run concurrent with the underlying contract uh, as far as the term, like it be a, you know, base year with four one-year extensions and 
that would uh, the contract term would run concurrent with that with of course uh, you know outs uh, for the you know abilities to terminate um, for non-performance and other things of that nature so it is essential that um, you have that ability and you're not just stuck with somebody with no way to get out of the contract that's not that's not uh, obviously not a good situation. So that's something that uh, should never be agreed to. Uh, uh, the uh, you know I would be happy to be happy to take questions um, regarding the uh, teaming agreements and whatever. Whatever else you uh, questions you may have for me, as far as uh, what we're experiencing right now in the uh, cafe space, and in particular the government space, um, there are there is a lot going on. So uh, I'd be happy to answer questions, and uh, if anybody has any. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you is: Would you? Um, share your information if you send me uh, um, the information you have if you have notes or whatever that would be great because I'd be glad to share it with uh, folks Sir. this is artist this is artist yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah, artist. <laughs> when when you try to uh, do a tuning partner do you um, talk to vendors in advance before you talk to SLAs or do you talk, talk strictly with SLAs or um, how do you uh, work some of the partnerships? Great question. Um, you know, it, it, it really just depends. It, uh, a lot of times we're contacted directly by a licensed bond manager. Um, and we, you know, our contact with SLA is only after we've kind of come to terms or come to an agreement to team with the uh, licensed blind manager. Uh, in other states, the SLA takes a more active role uh, and, you know, brings us to the table. And, and that kind of goes back to, I think, some of the uh, guidance that was issued by the RSA. I think the, you know, going forward, we'll see the, the licensed blind managers uh, a lot more autonomous in the selection of teaming partners um, and that the states are have much more of a uh, uh, advisory role maybe is a, is a way to put it uh, which is was the case in most situations even before the, the RSA guidance but um, I think one of the things that seems to have changed recently is that we used to have a lot of uh, like three-way contracts and with the state, the um, licensed by manager and us. Um, and I think that now what we're seeing is uh, we're having an agreement with just the teaming agreement is strictly with the licensed blind vendor. And, um, but one of the things that if that with that arrangement is if we're operating in a 
federal facility and the contract is held by the SLA and then our our agreements strictly with the license plan manager and if something were to happen suddenly to that individual you know our contract would be uh, you know it would put us in a awkward contractual situation so what we have done is have a continuity agreement with with the SLA just saying that should anything happen um, whereas there was suddenly not a licensed blind manager that, that we would operate, uh, continue to operate, um, you know, until such time as a new, you know, licensed manager was assigned to the location. And that, um, that gives the state, you know, some, uh, some degree of, uh, of, uh, assurance that, you know, we'll, you guys, otherwise we would not, we would suddenly perhaps be in a situation where we wouldn't have a contractual um, right to operate, um, which would create all kinds of issues as far as our insurance and, and whatnot. Uh, and so those kind of, you know, having a continuity agreement is important, I believe, and it doesn't run afoul of the RSA guidance that the agreement should be with, um, you know, the licensed bond manager and the teaming partner and is selected by the, uh, the licensed bond manager. And I believe, you know, I'm not sure the, the guidance exactly says that, but I think that's the general gist or spirit. Uh, the other thing uh, people might be interested in knowing is um, what is expected if you're doing a teaming partner with a blind manager. Uh, sometimes if they have never done that before, uh, sometimes it's hard to know what the expectations are, et cetera. Right. Um, well, and that's something that we, you know, discuss in depth um, with each and every one of our partners and, and, you know, we fashion the roles of the relationship based on what they want it to be. And so, um, you know, we have situations, uh, and I'd say the majority where, or almost all, uh, where uh, the licensed blind vendor is, as I mentioned in the beginning of my uh, talk, is the boss. And they're, they're, take the lead role and um, and they still control the operation. We're providing the support and we're providing the financial backing. Uh, we're providing the operational expertise um, to, to operate the larger locations. And so, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, it, there, are, there are situations where uh, the licensed bond manager, you know, maybe is running the vending uh, and in the micro markets, um, and the the cafe is part of the contract, and they want to focus on that aspect of it and say, you guys, you guys handle the uh, the manual food service, the the cafe, and you know, of course, they're still in control, uh, but they're not. Um, taking as active role because they um, are, 
busy with the vending in the micromarket. So there's certainly that situation. And so we we work with each each uh, uh, licensed blind manager to fashion the roles of the relationship based on however how they want it to be and what works best for them. Um, and and that's you know leads to a, a lot of different kind of specifics on those roles but that's the generalized uh, gist of it. Great. No, that sounds uh, excellent. <clears throat> Walt, 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 uh, Dan Simple here. Uh, again, hey, Dan. It's good to hear your voice again. Um, but I, just, uh, I guess uh, it's not a real professional question, but it's uh, out of pure curiosity. With um, all the refugees from Afghanistan that were all of a sudden housed in eight or nine military bases around the country, how in the world did you work out an agreement with DOD to handle feeding nine, ten thousand extra people, you know, seven, three meals a day, seven days a week. You know, I, I can't imagine the, the stress that put on these military bases and the food service contracts. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and so there were uh, none of the Afghan refugees ended up at any of the uh, army facilities that we operate. So, um, you know, there was brief talk for a couple of days of them coming to one of them. uh, But that was uh, strictly uh, very brief. Um, How they ended up, how they handled it. And I think that this is the way they were handling it from the the get-go was it was handled under the log cap contract, um, which is basically a logistics, uh, uh, what's a log cap stands for logistics and civilian augmentation program. Uh, And it's basically a very large contract. It's a contingency contract that when they need them, they say, okay, you've got to go here and, you know, feed this many people. Um, and that is currently Kellogg, Brown, and Root has that contract. And that's a huge, I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, allocated for hundreds of billions of dollars. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, so when they, when they need them, they jump and basically they go and, and take care of it. And they have infrastructure to be able to handle it, um, you know, in place that's kind of part of their readiness expenses. And so that is how they, uh, as I understand it, ended up um, handling it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that they were. I think most of them ended up at Quantico, at the naval facility at Quantico. Uh, from what I hear. Yeah. Yeah, we got. Um, I guess around between nine and ten thousand here at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. They brought about uh, nine or ten thousand of them up. And, oh wow! Uh, just uh, yeah, so just kind of. 
Well, that's a always been on my mind as to how how that would how that was handled as far as food service. Because uh, unfortunately, we you know lost our food service with Fort McCoy a number of years ago for um, various reasons, which I really probably best not get to at this point. <laughs> but right. Uh, but yeah, I just uh, I, I was always curious how the you know the, you know since we're involved in food service with all the team with you teaming partners that. How you guys would survive that? But if you have, I, I can understand that they have a large company on standby. Because you know, being from Eau Claire, we had uh, Presto, which was a munitions plant during World War II in Vietnam, and uh-huh. they paid they paid the Phillips family millions and millions of dollars a year to maintain a fa- empty factory, so that if they needed it, went to war, they could pr- start producing munitions again. So a year they had a, every year they get X number of million dollars just to keep that plant up and running, even though there's nothing going on. But they had to make an annual inspection, make sure it was capable of starting up within an hour's notice. Right. So I understand. I understand those yeah. big contracts there. Yeah. I, I think they're uh, also feeding the you know, for a while there before they were, I guess. Put placing them around the country, you know, the the immigrants uh, that were coming across the southern border were being housed in temporary facilities, and they had to feed them. So, I believe that's how they handled that is through that log cap as well. Oh, I believe okay. so. Okay. okay, if there's there's time for uh, maybe one more question, <clears throat> is there anyone else that has a question or comment from uh, for Southern? <clears throat> Are there any raised hands? No raised hands. Okay, do you have a final comment, uh, Walt? Great, well, want you to thank the Southern Teaming Partners if uh, you should ever have a need for um, a teaming partner and we'd be happy to help you out. Thank you so much for having us and uh, we appreciate being included in this. Well, we appreciate your sponsoring our event each year. That's so great to have you on board appreciate that thank you fantastic always have you around okay and we're going to welcome the seeing eye incorporated and we have chelsea white is going to be speaking to us thank you so much um i'm gonna switch gears a bit on you guys um listening a little bit to the last presentation and, and it sounds like talking a lot about um, being that it's a vendor of BPA conference talking a lot about that kind of stuff so I'm gonna change gears a little bit um, and talk about um, dog guides um, and give you guys some information about uh, dog guides in general and our school about the seeing eye and um give you guys some opportunity to ask some questions towards the end. So um, I am Chelsea White. I am outreach for the seeing eye. So I, in non-COVID times when travel is, is, is a little easier, um, travel around the country, uh, speaking to folks at conferences and conventions, both professional and consumer uh, in the blindness field. Uh, to folks at um, rehab centers, schools for the blind, um, basically any place where there might be blind or visually impaired individuals uh, or professionals in the field of visual impairment. Uh, 
um, sharing information about dog guide travel in general, and then more specific information about the seeing eye and kind of our program and what we do and how we operate and that kind of thing. So um, I live in Dallas, Texas. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and not only do I work for the seeing eye, but I'm also a graduate. Um, I have been a dog guide traveler, uh, a seeing eye grad now for almost 32 years. And I'm currently working uh, my fifth dog. She's a about a 60 pound German shepherd um, named Brooke. So, and we've been together now almost four years. So um, a little bit of just kind of general information about dog guide travel. Um, for those of you who who may not know or, or may be new to, to dog guide travel or maybe thinking about a dog or any of those kinds of things. Um, so canes, canes are obstacle detectors, right? They, you use your cane to detect those obstacles physically in your environment that you may need to then navigate around or to avoid or use that cane to physically detect the drop-offs, um, the stairs, the curb cuts, those kinds of things. Um, dogs are obstacle avoiders and are visual travelers. So dog guide travel is, is essentially visual travel, uh, albeit through the dog. So dogs, dogs are taught... Um, basic obedience commands, down, um, come when called, those kinds of things. So basic things you would teach any pet dog. Um, they're also taught the directional commands of left, right, and forward. They are taught to pull in harness. Um, a harness that a dog guide wears is not only sort of their uniform, it's what indicates to them that they're working and that when they're not, when they're not working, the harness comes off and, you know, they're, they're kind of just a part of your family and, and, and just a dog. Um, but the harness is also how you get a lot of the information that you need to get from your dog. Um, so every dog pulls in harness to, to one level or another. Um, some dogs pull, you know, just hard enough. Uh, and some dogs pull like a Mack truck. Um, and, and so that goes into matching dog to person that we'll get into in a little bit. But um, you can feel your dog's movements through that harness. And those movements mean things. So if a dog stops, you can feel it and you stop with your dog. If the dog pulls off to the left, um, you follow your dog off to the left because if they're pulling off to the left or pushing you to the right, they are avoiding an obstacle. So you need to follow them to get around that particular obstacle. So, so they're directional commands of left, right, and forward, pull and harness. They're taught to avoid obstacles, which I've mentioned already. So you use a cane to detect those obstacles to find that garbage can or that light pole or, or that table or chair or whatever that obstacle might be. And then you use your cane physically to, to either... Um, get around that obstacle or, you know, if you're looking for a chair to find that chair and then, you know, to sit down and those kinds of things. Dogs are taught to avoid obstacles. So that trash can, that light pole, those tables, those chairs, people, 
um, bicycles, all of that stuff in your environment that you could, you know, run into, trip over, whatever. Dogs are taught to avoid those obstacles. So to get you around it without running into it, tripping over it, those kinds of things. So they're not only taught to get around it themselves, but to pick the way around something that would get both you and them around it safely. Okay. Um, Included in that obstacles is overheads. So stuff that's at about head level, um, which these days isn't a lot, but if you're walking through your neighborhood and, you know, your neighbor hasn't pruned a tree in a while and it's got some low hanging branches, um, dogs are taught to, either avoid those overhangs if they can, um, you know, take you out around it if they possibly can, if it's safe to do so, or to stop to basically let you know, hey, you know, that that tree branch, remember that tree branch? It's, it's right here. So that you can then, you know, protect your face and, and that kind of stuff from those overhangs. So um, dogs are also taught to stop at elevation changes. So, the tops and bottoms of flights of stairs and the down and the up curb or down and up ramp of a street. So if you're walking down the sidewalk, you come to the, to the corner dog is going to stop at that down ramp or that down curb and wait for you to give them their next directional command. Um, Same with stairs. If you're walking in a building or or come across a flight of stairs somewhere, dog is going to stop at the top or the bottom of that flight of stairs and then is going to wait for you to use your foot to find the edge of that step and then to tell them forward um, to either go up or down those stairs. Um, Dogs are also taught what we call intelligent disobedience. So intelligent disobedience in the dog guide world means that if you give your dog a directional command of left, right, or forward, and if that particular situation that you would be going into is not safe, the dog is not going to go. They're going to refuse that command of forward or left or right, whatever it happens to be, um, and and wait um, until it's safe either to proceed or, you know, wait for you to... um, pick a different direction to go. So a lot of times where you'll see that intelligent disobedience, um, say in a train station, um, whether it be, uh, you know, Amtrak or that kind of thing, or more of a commuter um, type light rail situation, you might see that there. So say you, you get onto the train, you get to your stop, you get out, um, exit the train um, and, and maybe get a little turned around, um, maybe get jostled by somebody or, you know, you exit in a big crowd of people and get a little disorientated. And um, in your mind, the edge of the train platform is, is to your, say to your left. So in your mind, you know, if you went straight forward, you would be heading into um, this off the platform and, and into the station to get out and, and on your way. When in reality, that um, if you kept on going forward, you would be off the edge of the train platform onto the tracks. So what your dog would do in that situation is you say forward and your dog's 
because they've been trained, you know, the edges of train platforms, typically that drop is, is a pretty significant one. And so they've been trained that they'll go about up to where the tactile warning strip starts to indicate, you know, the edge of a train platform. They'll go up about that far and they would refuse to go forward um, any further than that, unless there's a train there, obviously, to, to get on. But if there's no train, the dog is going to go on. Ah, we can't go that way. They're going to refuse to go any further forward and more than likely would either pull off to the left or to the right, which is basically their way of saying, hey, we can't go forward. That's not safe. We need to, you know, either either left or right is is you know, up the platform and out of the station. So, um, so that's intelligent disobedience. Um, you might see it in traffic as well. Um, dogs do not make the decision when it's safe to cross the street. That's your job. Um, that's your job to have those orientation and mobility skills to be able to listen to your traffic and, and to make a judgment as to when it's safe to cross the street. Not the dog's job. Um, dogs, dogs are colorblind. So, well, basically colorblind. Um, so the red and green and yellow of, of streetlights mean nothing to them, um, because they, they don't, they don't see those colors, um, at least not in the same way that, that, that we do. Um, and to my knowledge, um, dogs don't read either. So the walk and the don't walk and and those kinds of things mean nothing to them either. So the decision to to cross the street, to to listen to that traffic, again, to know when it's safe to make that decision is yours. However, um, dogs have been trained to be aware of traffic um, and to understand that uh, we, you know, we don't step out in front of moving vehicles. So if you say you're standing on the corner, you've got your perpendicular street in front of you, your dog is stopped at that curb and your parallel street is off to your left. And when you get to the corner, the traffic on your perpendicular street is still going. So obviously we, we you know, we wait, wait for that parallel surge. So get that parallel surge and you tell your dog forward. And the second after you say forward, um, two things happen. Um, One, your dog refuses to go. And two, you hear as it makes the turn in front of you, turning right um, on red, a a car that you previously didn't hear over all of the other traffic sounds. Okay. What happened there is your dog saw that car starting to move to make that turn um, before you heard it. And because of their training, they were like, you know, they were like, nah, I I know we don't, you know, that's a moving car. We don't step out in front of that. Okay. So your dog made the intelligent decision to disobey the command of forward uh, and not go into the street at that particular moment. Um, And at that point, what you would do is wait for the car to make their turn and then tell your dog forward across the street and then to get across the street. Okay. Um, so that is pretty much what dogs are trained to do. Um, they are not GPSs. Um, I mentioned earlier that 
you know, the decision to cross the street, to listen to traffic, to know when it's safe, um, all of that kind of stuff is your job as, as the traveler. Um, it's also your job to know where you're going and how to get there. Um, so to know how many blocks you walk, to know where you turn, um, all of that kind of stuff is, is your job as, as the traveler, as the guide dog handler. Okay. It's the dog's job to keep you safe, um, to keep you from falling down those stairs and, you know, to bumping into things that may injure you and, and that kind of thing. Um, it's your job to know how to get to where you're going and then to direct your dog with left, right, and forward to get there. Okay. Um, dogs are also not trained to protect. Um, as a matter of fact, any dog that shows aggression um, anywhere throughout their training process, whether it be with their puppy raisers while they're still young dogs, um, back to us for training, um, anywhere throughout that process, the dog shows aggression towards um, people or other animals or just general aggression. Um, that dog is um, retired out of our program and um, quite often actually goes on to do other work like police work and, and that kind of thing. But um, they're not, they don't stay in the program to become a seeing eye dog. Um, they're taken out of the program and, and like I said, quite often go on to do other jobs. So, um, so, so they are not trained in any way, shape or form to protect. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I have a German shepherd and some people think she's big and scary and, and this big mean dog. But um, frankly, to be perfectly honest, she would probably lick a person to death before, um, you know, before she would, you know, do anything else of, of any sort of aggressive manner. So um, they do serve as a deterrent though. Uh, you know, while my dog is not trained to protect me and I honestly really don't know if she would or wouldn't, um, you know, she still serves as a deterrent. You know, she's a pretty good sized German shepherd. Um, and, and most people would just rather not find out, you know, what would happen. So, you know, somebody's looking to snatch a purse or steal a wallet or, or something like that. Um, and they have a choice between a person with a dog and a person without more than likely they're going to choose the person without. So, um, so they do serve as a deterrent. Um, so, um, I did earlier, you know, talked about while dogs are not GPSs and, and it's your job to know where to go and all of that kind of stuff and how to get there. Um, dogs do, however, learn the places that you go to frequently. So your house, um, you know, your vending stands, um, the various places on a military base that you may go to, you know, to uh, check uh, vending machines, uh, you know, your favorite coffee shop, um, the places that you go to frequently, um, dogs learn those places. They have a fantastic memories actually. And so, you know, say for example, you are in one of those, you know, really big strip mall, kind of outdoor strip mall places where it's just store after store after store after store after store. And, you know, it's just all kind of glass fronted, you know, storefronts with doors every so often. And 
you know, in that strip mall, there's say three places that you go to frequently. Um, you know, the place where you get your haircut, um, your favorite coffee shop, and say a little grocery store. And so as you're walking along, the first place is is your your barber, uh, your haircut place. The second place is your coffee shop. And the last place is um, the, little, the little grocery store. And so you want to go up and have a cup of coffee today. And so you, you head up there and, and you're walking along. And your dog, when they come to the barbershop, um, will probably pause for a second. Pause, maybe turn their head and kind of look. And, and that's their way of, of saying, hey, this is the barbershop. Do we want to go here today? And so that not only is, is very helpful in that if you're looking for the barbershop, you know, fantastic, you found the barber. Um, but it's also a, a way for you to, to kind of help keep your, your orientation in space. And, and so because you have good orientation, you know, oh, the first place is my barbershop. No, I, I, don't, I don't need a haircut today. I want to go get a cup of coffee. So you'll tell your dog, nope, not today, or, or whatever you choose to tell them. But, but I'll usually tell my dog, you know, no, not today, hop up, which is basically, you know, my way of saying, nah, you know, I don't need a haircut today. Let's, let's, let's move on. And so then dog would continue on and the next place, which is the coffee shop, they would turn their head again, maybe pause for a second, turn their head a little bit, look. And then you could say, oh, yep, the coffee shop. I know the second place is the coffee shop and I want coffee today. Um, so you'll tell your dog, oh, good job, because you always praise for good for good work, for good behavior, for good work. And, and then tell them, uh, say it's the store is on the right. So then you would say, oh, good job, right, right, inside. So at that point, they would um, find the door and then you would go in and get your coffee and, and, and off you go. Um, so that, uh, while the orientation is still your responsibility, still your responsibility to know that when your dog stopped for the first time, that that was the barbershop, okay? Um, dogs do what we, they call it patterning. So they pattern. Um, so they get to know those places that you go to frequently and will show them to you, okay? It's still really important to keep track of that orientation because, you know, maybe you don't want to go to a particular place. You didn't want to go to the barbershop. You didn't need to. Um, so to keep track of that orientation so that, you know, you, you still are aware of where you're at and will be able to get, you know, to where it is you need to go for that day. So um, I, I had a dog when I was a college student. And um, my dog pretty quickly would get to know my class schedule every semester. And so, you know, we'd get into a pretty good routine of, you know, certain days we went to certain classes and, and you know, she could pretty much get to those places probably with her eyes closed as well. Um, but uh, we always had a discussion at the very beginning of each new semester because she had it in her head because, you know, she didn't know that things changed that, you know, Monday we took a left and, and we went to, you know, building a, and, and now the semester changed and now we're going to go right. And we're going to building D 
And the first couple of days of, of every semester was always a bit of a challenge um, because she would want to go right. And I'd be like, no, we need to go left. And she would kind of start going left. And then she'd be like, are, are you sure? Are you sure? You don't, you must be lost. And so she would, you know, try to take me right and be like, no, left. And so we had that discussion for a couple of days at the beginning of every semester until she got to, you know, realize that things had changed and okay, you know, it's different. I don't know why, but it's different. So, so we'll go with it. Um, but, you know, it was my job to, to have that good orientation, um, you know, to know what she was trying to do. Um, and then also to, to be able to go, no, you know, that's, that's not what we're doing. That's not where we're going. So, um, so that is pretty much, um, pretty much what dogs are trained and not trained to do. Um, I get asked quite a bit, um, you know, kind of, uh, what, what a school, what guide dog schools might be looking for. Um, as far as, uh, you know, a good applicant or a good candidate. Um, and every guide dog school is a little bit different in their qualifications, but in general, um, dog guide schools are looking for somebody um, with good orientation and mobility skills. Um, we've talked about that already, um, that, you know, that's important in, working with a dog is, is knowing where you're at and how to get to where you're going. Um, so somebody with good orientation and mobility skills, um, somebody who is fairly active, uh, you know, you don't have to run marathons or, or climb mountains or anything like that, but somebody who, who is in, you know, goes to a job every day, um, maybe goes to school uh, somebody who, uh, you know, maybe even if they're a, a stay-at-home parent, you know, they're the stay-at-home parent. So they're the one going to the grocery store and taking taking kids to school and, you know, that kind of thing. So somebody who's fairly active. Uh, we like to say a dog needs about a mile's worth of work most days of a week. Um, doesn't have to be every single day of a week, but it needs to be most days of a week, you know, say five-ish, six-ish days a week. Um, they need about a mile's worth of work, um, not only to burn off the energy that especially a younger dog has, but to keep their work sharp. Uh, you know, dogs are just like us. They, they learn a skill, and if they don't practice that skill, then that skill is lost. So we give them to you fully trained and it's up to you then to keep up that training by, you know, working them on a regular basis. So if you go get a dog, go home, don't work them for three months and expect them to work like they did when you were in class getting them, you're going to be sadly disappointed um, because those skills are going to get pretty rusty pretty quickly. So, um, so somebody who fairly active, um, somebody who's in relatively good physical shape, um, again, don't have to be a marathon runner or anything like that, but, um, the good physical shape kind of goes hand in hand with somebody who's fairly active. 
Um, so again, you know, the ability to walk about a mile or so a day doesn't have to be super fast, uh, but it needs to be able to be uh, continuous. Um, so to be able to walk a mile continuously, because uh, when you're in class training with a dog, you will be walking about a mile a day um, or more uh, for the time that you're in class training with your dog. So, um, and then obviously somebody who is interested, you know, in having a dog um, and in partnering with a dog, um, you know, canes, canes are fantastic. Um, they're, they're great tools. Uh, you know, when you're done with your cane, you throw it in the corner and, and that's it. You don't have to do anything with it. You know, maybe you change a cane tip every once in a while. Um, you know, but that's about it. You know, you really don't have to do much for a cane. Uh, dogs, dogs are, while absolutely amazing, um, and I, I love dog guide travel. Um, I wouldn't have had dogs for as long as I had if I didn't. Um, but but they are a little more work. Uh, you know, they kind of like to be fed. That's kind of important to most of them. Uh, they need to, you know, go out several times a day to relieve uh, you know, they need to, to be groomed on a regular basis. Um, they kind of like to have some attention. So be played with and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and to, you know, kind of be a part of the family. So, so they, they do, they do require a little more work, um, and expense than a cane. Um, so that's also something to, you know, kind of keep in mind and to, to think about. Um, but that's also something that we look for too, as somebody who, um, you know, is ready to, to take on the partnership of having a dog. So, so that is pretty, pretty general uh, as to kind of what schools are looking for. Another question I get quite a bit is what about remaining vision? Um, you know, it, it was a long time, oh, kind of rule uh, that to be successful with a dog guide that you had to be either totally blind or awfully darn close to it to be successful with a dog. And um, that mindset has changed um, probably over the last mm, 20-ish, 25-ish years or so. Um, people with remaining vision can be very successful and have been very successful with, with dog guides. Um, there is a such thing as too much vision, um, but what uh, what we typically say, um, because you really can't put a, an acuity to it. You can't say, well, you have to be, you know, 2,600 or you have to, you can't really put too much of a emphasis on that because you can have two people with the exact same acuity, but how they use that remaining vision can be completely different. And how they might work with a dog with that remaining vision could be completely different. So what we typically say is, um, one, is that if you are a cane user um, or should be a cane user, uh, most of the time to be a safe traveler, then a dog is a possibility. Um, if you only pull a cane out, maybe say at night uh, or 
you know, on occasion, if you're, you know, in an unfamiliar environment or something like that, or if you just have a cane, kind of carry it more for identification purposes. Um, you know, you really don't need it to keep yourself safe um, to detect the obstacles and, and the drop-offs and all that kind of stuff. Um, then a dog is just really honestly going to slow you down. Um, but, you know, if you need that cane to, to keep you safe, to keep you from, you know, bumping into things and falling downstairs, um, then a dog is definitely a possibility. Um, the other thing that we say too is to really think about would you be willing to let the dog do the job they were trained to do? So to stop at those curbs and steps, to go around those obstacles, that kind of stuff, and you not use your vision um, to compete with them. So if you're stopping them before they stop at that curb, or if you're going around those obstacles before they make the move to do it, and they're going to learn very quickly that, oh, hey, you know, I don't have to do that stuff, right? I can just kind of coast along and, you know, maybe sniff a bush every once in a while and watch the birds and, you know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to do that stuff. That's just pretty cool. Um, they're going to learn pretty quickly. They don't have to do that stuff. And then when you get into a situation where maybe your vision isn't as reliable, um, you know, it's, it's a glary day and, and, you know, you're getting all kinds of weird reflections and, um, or it's at night when your vision isn't as good or whatever, whatever the situation happens to be, um, then your dog isn't going to stop at those curbs and they're going to bump you into things because, they've learned because normally you stop them or you go around those obstacles. Um, and dogs are smart. They're very smart. They're a lot smarter than most people give them credit for. Um, and they're very, you know, dog guys are very well-trained, um, but they don't rationalize. They don't, you know, they don't go, Oh, okay. Well, the, the lighting's different. So he can't see that today. So I'm going to have to watch out for it today. But you know, yesterday he, his vision was great. So, you know, I didn't have, they, they don't, they don't, they don't think like that. Um, so you have to be consistent and, and willing to let them do their job. And then, you know, you, it's not to say that you can't still use your remaining vision. You can, um, you just may use it differently. Um, you know, so if you can see when the light turns green, or if you can still with, you know, some a monocular or something like that, read street signs or, um, you know, you can tell when the grocery store that you like to go into is coming up because it has a bright red awning over it and you can see that bright red, what, whatever it is. Um, but use that vision more for orientation purposes uh, instead of, you know, the sort of mobility safety stuff because um, that's what the dog is there for. So... Well, thank you. I really appreciate this. Oh, would you mind taking a question or two? No, not at all. Okay. Is there anyone that has their hand raised or would like to raise their hand? Because, boy, you've given some excellent information. I've really appreciated it. Good. Well, I'm watching for raised hands. 
I know uh, one thing that I've noticed that at conventions, when there's lots of people and lots of dogs, sometimes a dog owner will be behind me and they'll say, hop, 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 and want to run through you. And I'll have to turn around and say, sorry, he can't move forward because I'm here. <laughs> in, in those situations, sometimes it's hard to know whether, you know, the dog is, is you know, being dawdling because there's too many people or dawdling because they're sniffing all of those people. <laughs> Oh, I can understand at, at, that. You know, at the at the end of the day, while while very well trained and, and amazing and fantastic and all that kind of stuff, they are still dogs and still do doggy things on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And uh, Chelsea's information is in the exhibitor list. So, if any of you have questions that you aren't thinking of right now and want to ask her later, uh, please do contact her. And if you if you want to share your notes with me, I'd appreciate it because I can always pass those along as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's been it's been great listening to That's all of this wonderful information. Fantastic. Chelsea, well, you do not have any questions. I think you did such a good job. My dog and I were sitting here listening. And Either that or everybody's asleep. I'm not quite sure. And she said you were right on target. So, but I'm looking. And uh, just in case this, you know, webinars day, I don't always follow the rules, but um, <laughs> I guess she did such a great job that everybody, nobody seems to have a question. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Hello, my name is Ted Drake, and I'm the Global Accessibility Leader for Intuit, the makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, Mint, T-Sheets, and Credit Karma. We've been a proud sponsor of the Sagebrush Conference for Randolph Shepard vendors, and we look forward to this year's virtual event. We've all been affected by the COVID pandemic, but this is especially true for small business owners. For many, there have been few opportunities to adapt to the closed buildings, reduce tourism, and shift to virtual universities and government work. At Intuit, our success metrics are based on powering prosperity of small businesses. Our goal is to increase the number of businesses that succeed past the five-year mark. So we've taken significant steps to help small businesses survive the COVID shutdowns and transformations. I'd like to share some of these tools with you. Laura Belaz is into its chief marketing officer and the general manager of strategic partnerships. She explained, in service to our company's mission of powering prosperity around the world, it was imperative that Intuit offer a response that best serves our local and global communities customers, and small businesses by focusing on what matters most during this time, putting money into the pockets of consumers and small businesses when they need it most. Intuit has created a resource site for businesses like yours. It's located at quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus, one word, coronavirus. Once again, that's quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. You'll find links on this page to the resources I'm about to share. Intuit's aid assist website includes tools to help small businesses access the Paycheck Protection Program loans and estimate the tax credits for 2020. 
You can access these at aidassist, one word, dot intuit.com. That's aidassist, A-I-D-A-S-S-I-S-T, dot intuit.com. These tools have helped businesses apply for and receive millions of dollars in loans. Intuit's tools will help you understand if you are eligible for a first or second loan and the process for loan forgiveness. You can also estimate how much benefit you can receive from the employee retention credit, paid leave credits, and potential for tax deferral. Here are some additional resources to emerge stronger from the pandemic. Crisis events force us to reevaluate our goals and how to be successful. Intuit has created a series of videos, workshops, articles, and materials to help you rebuild your business and expand your opportunities. Intuit launched a video conferencing platform to support businesses and their customers and employees. This provides a secure, private conversation that would have taken place in person. You can share notes, create action items, and save a transcript for later reference. You can access this at accelerate.intuit.com. That's accelerate.intuit.com. A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E dot intuit.com. You can also announce that you're reopening with a series of customizable posters, social media posts, signage, and much more with our marketing support site. These free templates make it easy to create professional announcements for your business. Intuit has also partnered with GoFundMe, that's G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E, GoFundMe, to help you create campaigns for your loyal customers to help you reopen and expand your businesses. Intuit has worked with companies to provide special discounts for COVID responses. You can get discounts for credit monitoring, printing, insurance, and more. Finally, the future is in your hands and knowledge is going to power your prosperity. Intuit has worked with business leaders to provide articles, interviews, and town hall meetings. All of these as well as links to the government and health resources are available at our COVID-19 Small Business Resource website. It's located at quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. That's one word, coronavirus. Once again, quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. Thank you and enjoy the Randolph Shepard Sagebrush Conference.